Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm doing great. Looking forward to an exciting week over the next uh, week, week and a half, actually. On my way to Osaka wow. this week. Yeah, going. I was invited by uh, actually Masasaito's widow, uh, Michi, who's a, a close family friend. And when Masa passed, we stayed in touch and a group of individuals, promoters, and so forth, decided to put on a big memorial event in Osaka um, over the weekend. So I am on my way to Osaka and I'm going to speak at that event. I'm very honored and excited to do it. Well, we're excited to be here with you, man, because we've got a lot of fun stuff coming up. Well, I know what we can expect today. Super Brawl 3, that's what we're going to be covering. We're going to get back in our Wayback Machines and go to February 21st, 1993 from the Asheville Civic Center right there in Asheville, North Carolina. Is this the first pay-per-view under your regime or where are you in your WCW tenure when this goes down? You know, Conrad, I was really, I knew this question was coming and I, and I've always struggled with the timeline of certain things especially in the very beginning, you know, 91, 92, 93, even in the early 94, because so many things happened so quickly during that period of time from a management point of view and a philosophical point of view and all that kind of crap and a booking point of view. Um, and I wasn't involved in, like, I really wasn't involved, you know, 90, when did I get hired? I think I got hired in 91, maybe. Um, Man, I stayed as far away from the politics that was going on in WCW as I possibly could, as we've covered here before. You know, I, when I was first hired, I was hired as an announcer. They'd fly me in on a Sunday night. I'd work Monday. I'd work Tuesday. I'd fly home, you know, either Tuesday night or Wednesday morning. So when I was there, I was pretty busy. I had all my assignments. I knew what I had to do. Most of the time I was in a, a sound booth and I was doing, you know, voiceovers for a lot of our international shows and all the, you know, the kind of tough, dirty announcing work that Jim Ross and Tony Schiavone didn't really have time for, frankly. Um, so I didn't really interact with people. And when I did, I'd hear the politics and the drama, and it was just saturated. WCW was saturated in drama and politics when I first got there and for a long time afterwards. And I just said, fuck it. And I got a good gig. I'm keeping my head down. I'm going to tuck my chin. I'm going to keep my guard up. I'm going to do my shit. And I'm going home to hug my kids and pay my bills. And so I didn't engage in a lot. It wasn't until Bill Watts in the latter part of 92, mid 92, whenever it was, that I started really being affected by the politics of it all and therefore started paying closer attention. Now, I'm not sure when when Watts was let go, if it was late 92 or early 93, but I'm pretty confident this is my first pay-per-view as the executive producer. But I want to, I want to put a pin in that, you know, that's not the same thing as taking over WCW. You know, I, I literally had control over the television budget and the general look and feel of how the show came across on television, not creatively, but in terms of lighting and graphics and to a degree, the announced team and pacing and that type of thing. Um, but in terms of what actually took place in the ring and the booking for the pay-per-view, that was, you know, who, who got hired, who got fired, who negotiated, whose contract during that period of time. That was not me. 
So as we go forward, because it's easy to get these dates and times and responsibilities because sometimes they overlap, sometimes they merge, sometimes they replace each other. It's really hard to keep it all straight, but I'm going to endeavor to do so. Well, it's an interesting time in WCW to say the least. One of the big stories happening at the time is the return of the nature boy, Ric Flair. Now his WWF contract wasn't supposed to expire until September of 93, but Vince comes to him and tells him, Hey, I'm going with younger guys and we need you to put over razor Ramon and then we'll figure it out from there. Rick can sort of read the tea leaves and realizes maybe it's time to see what I can get done in WCW because at the time management in WCW was a bit of uh, musical chairs. So ta-da, before you know it, Flair's back multi-signed or multi-year deal here signed with WCW. He's going to get, uh, a lot more money than what had originally been discussed when, uh, Bill Watts was saying, I'm not going to pay anybody more than a thousand dollars a night. Uh, and that's great news for Ric Flair. Lots of people believe that he's nowhere near his original contract that he had when he left the first time. And it's originally reported that that was around 750. He's going to be coming back here for around 400. So quite a pay cut, but the business was way down in 93 compared to when he left. When you first hear that Rick is coming back, what's the general mood and feelings? Everybody excited about Rick coming back or are there some groans in the locker room from guys who for whatever reason, weren't fans. You know, I don't know about the locker room at that point in my relationship with WCW. I really wasn't very close to many talent. Um, obviously, DDP and I were, were good friends. But even at that point, I don't think DDP was really talent or one of the boys. He was still in that announcer role for the most part. Uh, so I didn't really have any – I couldn't catch a vibe from the rest of the talent or the locker room, as you put it. Um, what I did hear a lot of was, and again, this goes to what I tried to set up here in the beginning of this broadcast. There were a lot of the politics, and I'm talking, look, we are all friends now. This is water under the bridge, whatever. We've all moved on. So I don't mean to disrespect or to characterize anybody in a negative light here. But there was a lot of politics, even, you know, Jim Ross, Dusty Rhodes had issues. When I first got there, I got an earful, you know, Dusty and Rick didn't always have the best relationship. I've spent many of hours sitting with Dusty and hearing his side of that story, you know, over cocktails at the Omni hotel, you know, in CNN center after work. So that there was, you know, there were two camps, definitely. I, I would say within the office, and I'm talking about people other than Ole Anderson and and Dusty and, and a few, a small handful of others, um, to set those guys aside and then look at everybody within the office. You know, the, the Rob Garners, the Sharon Sedellos, you know, the Don Edwards, people who were the nuts and bolts of day-to-day management, they were all very excited about it. Because so many of them, not all of them, but so many of them, I'd say 80% of them, came from the original acquisition of the then bankrupt NWA, uh, which later became WCW. So, so many of those people that were part of NWA and part of the heritage of Ric Flair and part of the, you know, the let's call it the golden age, if, if there was one in the NWA, probably was during that period of time when they were on fire, you know, with Rick. 
and and others, but being a part of that. So, so many of those people obviously reacted very favorably. Many of them were friends with Rick. They had a great relationship with Rick. I mean, Rick has always been, you know, someone you wanted to to hang out with at an event, right? A very charming guy. Um, so a lot of those people were just ecstatic, but not everybody on the wrestling operations side of the equation felt exactly the same way. There was some, there was some concern. And I think some of it was jealousy. I think some of it was frustration. Um, I think some of it was just fear, you know, how much power is Ric Flair going to have? And again, I can't overemphasize just the, the level of drama, political, you know, maneuvering and really distrust between so many of the, the, the wrestling operations side of the people at that time. At least that was my impression based on, and again, you got to remember before I became the executive producer, I was just like a, you know, a harmless little, you know, gnat running around the production studio doing the work that no one else had time to do. Nobody was threatened by me in any way, shape, or form politically. So I would, I'd hear shit like a potted plant sitting in, the, like JJ Dillon. I'd hear things sitting in the corner of the room that you know nobody really probably would want me to hear if they would have noticed I was even there. So it's it was a different vibe then. I was excited about it. I had no reason not to be. You know, I I know Jeff Carr who was, you know, a big influencer. In terms of what happened within WCW, Jeff Carr was the program director or program manager, I'm not sure what his title was, over at TBS. And he was recognized as the in-house authority and expert on professional wrestling. Of course, Jeff gained all of his knowledge from reading dirt sheets. And a lot of the wrestlers and senior management in WCW knew that. So none of them took him very seriously. But given his role, there were certain things you had to deal with. And Jeff was a huge fan of Ric Flair. And I think everybody realized that, you know, bringing Ric Flair back was a Turner thing, not a WCW thing. So nobody was really willing to stand up and make too much noise about it. Let's talk a little bit about the musical chairs at the time. And I'm sure we're going to cover this a lot more in great detail, but as the legend goes, the initial conversation to come back for Rick happens with Bill Watts and on the way out as part of his agreement with Vince, Hey, put over Mr. Perfect in a loser leaves town match on Monday night. Raw. It was very early in the Monday night raw era. And it was a big moment for that television show. But allegedly once he does that, uh, Ole Anderson says, well, now that you've lost on TV, what good are you to me? <laughs> so Ole Anderson is sort of the man in charge creatively. And I'm sure we're going to talk about that a little bit today on, on today's program as well. The transition from Bill Watts to Ole Anderson, did that have any effect on you at all? No, it didn't really. And Dusty was in there too. So let's, let's not, you know, forget him in that trifecta, uh, because he was there too. Dusty and Ole were working together. To, to a large degree. But to answer your question, no, it didn't affect me. And I was, there was a moment in time, and it's really weird to hear me even say this. I, Oli and I were pretty good friends. I mean, we didn't hang out together after work, not that kind of thing. But in a, in, in a working capacity, we were kind of uh, simpatico. You know, we saw things much the same way. I think the fact that I came from Vergania in, in a more traditional kind of a background because of that, I think Oli and I just, 
kind of naturally liked a lot of the same influences and styles at the time. And I just liked his personality. You know, I thought, you know, I didn't have to deal with him. I wasn't a talent. I was an announcer, but I didn't have to deal with Ole, right? So I didn't see the kind of asshole side of Ole Anderson. I only saw the fun side. You know, he and I would go back, you know, we're in a, I remember one scene in particular. I don't know how we both ended up down in the post-production suite um, one afternoon. And we were looking at tapes or discussing something. Somebody, Kemper Rogers, I think, was a senior editor at the time. And Kemper called us both in the room and said, hey, you guys got to take a look at this. And whatever it was we were looking at, we're joking around. And we liked it. And we were laughing and everything. You know, the vibe was good. As they would say in, in Wales, I think, you know, the crack was good. And that means the vibe was good. We weren't smoking crack in the post-production facility. I just want to make that abundantly clear. But we started wrestling around, you know, back there, like amateur wrestling. And I, I remember grabbing him, you know, with my right hand, I grabbed his right wrist. And with my left hand, I really just pinched him right behind the elbow as hard as I could. And I was able to kind of control him in a very lighthearted, fun way, not in a real shoot way. And at that point, he goes, oh, okay, you got a trick or two up your sleeve. From that point on, we were pretty friendly until I got more control later on, and that's when we started clashing. But yeah, answer your question, no, it didn't really affect me at that time. It didn't affect me until later on. I should also mention that uh, there's some title changes as we had in the 93 Big Van Vader regains the world title from Ron Simmons on December 30th in Baltimore, which is also where Ron beat Vader originally back in August. Business is quite different from WCW compared to the WWF. WCW in 92 is averaging 1,850 fans at their events. Meanwhile, the WWF is averaging 4,250. How does that stack up money-wise? 19,000 is your average gate for WCW 57,400 for the WWF. So business is way, way down. Uh, and, and 1993 is, is we can only go up. How's that sound? But your, your gate is way down. Like even from 92, your average attendance is down 19%. Your average revenues at the gate for these live events is down 44%. Uh, and your television ratings, oddly enough, are actually up 8.3%. And you've told us before, don't pay too much attention to ratings, but the business is down here. Did you feel like you guys were in a rebuilding phase when, when 93 rolls around, or are you even privy to any of that information? Is there a vibe? Well, in 93, by the time I became executive producer, I was very familiar with revenues and what was doing well and what wasn't. So, you know, to answer your question, yes and no. Prior to becoming executive producer, I had a general sense of where things were because everybody was talking about it. You know, it's not like nobody talked about how poorly the house shows are doing. It wasn't like we weren't talking about how tough it was to sell ads within WCW. That was all narrative that existed on a daily basis within the WWE hallways. Everybody knew that. We didn't necessarily have specific, you know, year to date or quarter to date kind of data, or I didn't, I should say. But from a kind of macro or, you know, high altitude perspective, we all knew it. 
Um, some of us knew the details, some of us didn't. And, you know, to your question, did I feel like we were in a rebuilding phase? I felt like we were in a do or die phase when, and it was made clear to me when, when Bill Shaw made me the executive producer in 1993. And of, at that time, I think this pay-per-view we're going to cover was my first one. I knew exactly where the company stood from a financial point of view in Turner. And we knew what the mandate was. Um, this was our last shot. Bill Shaw told the entire company once Bill Watts was fired before he announced me as executive producer, had a meeting with everybody, all of the staff in WCW without talent, just staff, um, and said, look, you know, we cannot afford any more embarrassments like we just went through with Bill Watts. We cannot afford any more losses like we've been going through since day one. Um, he pointed out to the company, the, the, the year, I think 1992, if I'm not mistaken, um, the company grossed $24 million and lost $10 million in doing so. That was unacceptable. So Bill made it clear. This is WCW's last shot. Ted was supportive. I'm kind of paraphrasing here. Bill let us all know that Ted has been supportive. He was the reason that NWA was bought out of bankruptcy. He, Ted firmly believed that wrestling was an important, you know, vital part of the network, uh, the Turner network at that time. Um, but if we can't get our shit straight, it won't matter because the plug will get pulled. I mean, Bill Watts leaving and the circumstances surrounding it was really the last straw. So we were all, I'll speak for myself. I'm not going to speak for anybody else. I was, it's like, all right, you know, we're either going to make this company successful or they're going to pull the plug. I didn't have any reason to doubt Bill Shaw when he said either turn it around, make it profitable, or we're pulling the plug. No reason to not believe him. And that's the way I operated. So I felt like I had a gun to my head. Wow. Well, there's a, uh, we're going to talk about with Bill Watts and all of that a lot more in a minute, but first I want to follow up on the Ron Simmons note because Ron Simmons is somebody who's advertised for this show, but doesn't actually make it. The trouble starts on December 29th when Bill Watts sends a film crew to Baltimore I'm sorry, to Philadelphia to see Ron drop the title, but Ron no shows. And you can imagine the heat that causes with Bill Watts. He does make the stop the next night in Baltimore. And that's where they drop the, the title to Vader before he heads over to Tokyo for the big Tokyo dome show. And Meltzer would write at press time, his status with WCW is considered very questionable. And of course, you know, you go back a few months to August, this was supposed to be the guy to turn the whole company around and be the first black champion and really, you know, make strides in a, in a new direction for WCW instead though, he's in the doghouse, find a couple of grand and considered being pulled off some shows. And we know that he's not going to be here for this pay-per-view. What do you remember, if anything, about Ron Simmons and his less than favorable uh, moments here with WCW? I wasn't involved in any of it. And again, at that point, in the very time period you're talking about here, late December, I was I was on my way out the door. I was making plans to do other shit. I had made up my mind that I was going to leave WCW. I no longer wanted to be there. I kind of lost my passion for it. Um, I knew that I had other financial opportunities that I could take advantage advantage of. So the 
you know, prior to late 93, you know, I needed that job. You know, I was, I was digging myself out of a pretty serious hole and, you know, I would have put up with just about anything in order to take care of that responsibility. But once I did and was back under financial control, it, then it became, you know, do I really enjoy this? You know, it's hard. It's, it's you know, a lot of travel. I don't really enjoy the people I'm working with anymore. The, and it wasn't the people I'm working with because there were a lot of people that I worked with. You know, Teddy Long and I, you know, became very good friends during this period of time. There were a couple guys in, in the production, you know, side of things that nobody knows their name. But we became pretty good friends and did a lot of things together. So I did have friendships there with with regard to the people I, I worked with on a day-to-day -day basis, but all of them were so frustrated and depressed and the, you know, just the, the vibe from Bill, that Bill Watts brought into WCW just slowly began like a malignant tumor to start affecting everything. It started out first with the talent and then it actually worked its way down into, you know, production. And I just didn't dig it anymore. I said, fuck it. I'm out. I don't need this. You know, I can do some other stuff. So I, to get back to the question, you know, I, I don't know anything about it because a, I wouldn't have been involved in it anyway. Even if I was interested, I wouldn't have been, that wasn't my world as a C squad announcer and B, I didn't give a fuck. I was on my way out the door. So he's supposed to be or Ron Simmons. That is pronouns, pal. His contract is going to be up in February. So WCW starts to look to see, Hey, who else can we get? And they start conversations with Terry Funk and originally Funk agrees to come in for a 750 nightly guarantee with a potential $250 bonus each night, but then thinks better of it, realizing, well, if it's a short-term deal, they're probably just going to have me put guys over and make me look bad. I don't really think I want to do that. So he clarifies what his role would be. And, uh, he decides, you know what? I'm going to take a pass. I'm not going to return. The original plan though, was to have him be in the cage match at the clash of the champions where he would be replacing van hammer. Ooh, uh, let's fast forward to the, no, let, let's not, let's stop right there. Um, respectfully, I don't mean to cut you off, sure. but there's a little bit more to that story that I'm not sure has ever been reported. Now I, I wasn't a part of these discussions, so I am, I am, giving everybody here third hand information or anecdotal stuff that I've kind of heard through the walls, so to speak, as I was there. Um, part of Terry Funk's deal, part of what Terry Funk wanted when you said he was clarifying his role was he wanted a, he wanted a hand in creative. Now that's what I was told by people who were involved in that process. And I'm not going to name names because it's a rumor and it's, I didn't hear it myself from from the source meaning Terry Funk but I did hear it from people who I had reason to believe had pretty good information um don't know if it's true but that was that was the tipping point with Terry coming in or not it wasn't what he was going to do in the ring it was what he wanted to be involved with from a creative perspective and a management perspective I think and I've never talked to Terry about this I've been with him a bunch of times obviously and worked with him in the ring and all that never talked to him about this but my understanding is he wanted to come in and be a part of the booking process. How do you think Terry would have done? I think it would have been a, a major issue between him and Dusty. 
You know, I think, you know, and I, I think it probably was, and I don't know, I've never worked with Terry Funk on, a, on, a, on that level. So I have no idea what he's like. I'm, I'm really just guessing. And my guess has absolutely no credibility. That being said, I think it would have started off pretty cool because both Dusty and Terry, the little bit I have worked with him and gotten to know him, you know, just superficially, um, probably had the same general view of what good wrestling was. They came up in the same area. They came up in the same era. They worked together millions of times The you know, triumvirate between flair and funk and Rhodes, you know, is legendary. So there was enough commonality, I think between them that initially it probably would have been fun and interesting. I think after about 120 days, that would have turned into something a lot less fun. <laughs> I think they would have eventually clashed. They're two strong personalities. You know, the, sure. that's the thing about creative, you know, people call it booking. We go back and forth. It's God, you got to have the right chemistry. You know, it's okay to have people that are, you know, say to your face, your ideas aren't any good or, or challenge you. Let's say that, you know, there's, there's a way to, you know, stand up against an idea and articulate, you know, your, your resistance to a concept that's good. And there's a way that's bad, but you want to surround yourself with people who will shoot holes in your shit because you need that, you know, just because you come up with an idea and you've, you've thought it through doesn't mean you've thought it completely through. You're only thinking it through from your point of view. And there are other, there are other ways people see a story or a character and you want to surround yourself with people that can fill those gaps or fill those holes in the story and make it even better. So you want to have people around that challenge you, but you don't want to have people around that challenge you to the point it's about, you know, who's got more power and that I was going to say who's got a bigger dick, but I knew you would transition right into a Bluetooth commercial if I did. <laughs> so it, there's a way to do it. There's a way not to do it. And I think Terry Funk and Dusty Rhodes would have been just too similar and too, too strong of personalities to get along with, you know, over an extended period of time. Eric, I just want to clarify for the record. What do you have against big dicks? Not a thing. Hell. Well, not a thing. All right, let's talk about uh this new Japan show because you you mentioned Masasito and he's on this show in early 93. Uh Ron, I'll run through the WCW results from that show. Ron Simmons gets a win over Tony Holm and he's going to go on to beat Ludwig Borga. It's a bit of an upset because Ron Simmons is in the doghouse, but whatever, Ron gets the win. Sting beats Hiroshi Haas or I'm just, I'm just butchering all these Japanese names. Sorry. Hiroshi. Hiroshi Hase. The great thing about Japanese is you just read it phonetically. There's no syllables. There's no cool way of saying shit like, you know, Spanish or Latin languages. You know, you just never know how to pronounce it like a J. But in Japanese, if you're reading Japanese that's printed in English, just repeat it. Uh, just repeat. Just look at it and repeat it the way it looks and you'll be right on the money. Masa is subbing for Antonio Inoki, who has a toe infection here. So Masa winds up tagging with Shinya Hashimoto and they beat Dustin Rhodes and Scott Norton. And then the great Muda pins Masa Chono to unify the NWA and IWGP versions of the world heavyweight title, which is pretty fun for a, a big main event here. Four and a quarter stars. It got in the observer. Did you make the trip over for this uh, Tokyo dome show in early 93? I did not. I did not. That was uh, prior to me getting involved 
or be, becoming executive producer, I'm pretty sure. And I remember the event, and I remember wishing I would have gone over for it, but I did not go. What was your feeling on having essentially two world titles at the time? You've got the NWA world title. You've got the new world title that most people associate with, you know, Sting or Lex Luger or Vader or Ron Simmons. So you've got the big gold and then the belt that briefly replaced big gold, but you do have essentially two world titles. And that's what we're talking about with Muda and Chono here, briefly, uh, unifying those. Talk to me a little bit about, uh, what you thought about there being two WCW world titles. That's a really good question. I looking back at it and being as honest and truthful as I can be about it. I didn't really understand how negative having two, two titles could be from a story point of view, from a brand point of view, from a focus point of view to me, it seemed like, Oh, it makes a great story. You know, because there's still this, and, and I'm not saying it was wrong at that time. Again, you know, you've got to put everything into its proper context. But I understood why they wanted to bring back the NWA title and 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 all of that. And it it had happened. This wasn't the only time it had happened. I don't think I understood it, but I didn't have enough experience or knowledge to have a strong opinion one way or the other. I, I just acknowledged it. Let's put it that way. As I look at it now, I think that's a really horrible idea. I think the same is true with WWE to this day, with a universal title and a world title. And, you know, what, what's the relationship between the two? Which has more value? Which are people willing to sacrifice for more than the other? If there's no why attached to the emotion concerning a belt or a championship or even a match – if there's no reason why why is this important why is this match more important than another match why is this belt more important than this belt if if you can't answer those questions in in the context of the way your stories are being presented when you have multiple championships the audience is just going to become kind of numb to it and not care if you can't tell them why they should feel strongly about the universal title for example in WWE and why the audience should care about the world title, if you can't communicate that to the audience, then the audience will just go, oh, fuck, it's, you know, they'll end up feeling the same way they do about it in terms of the color of somebody's tights. It just doesn't really matter. But at that time, I didn't, I didn't have that perspective. I do, I feel strongly about it now, as you could probably guess in the way I just answered that question. But at that time, I was ambivalent, I guess would be the best word. It was like, oh, okay, that makes sense, whatever. But I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't allow it now. It is, um, sort of interesting because boxing has done that for a long time. You know, you've got the WBA and the WBC. I mean, there's just so many, uh, alphabet soups of boxing organizations. They've all got a champion, but here in WCW, you guys are sort of trying something new where you say there's the WCW champion and then there's the NWA champion. And of course, what they just unified here briefly in Japan is the IWGP and the NWA world title. So there's just, uh, it is sort of interesting to follow. I do want to tag in on something that, you know, we never talk about the current product, but when you said, you know, Hey, how do you make fans care about the universal title compared to the world title? Have you seen what Daniel Bryan has done with the world title lately? 
uh, you know, what his character has done and now how, how the championship has been affected. And if so, what do you think? I'm aware of it. I don't follow it closely enough to be, you know, to, to speak too much detail about it. You know, the, it's, it stunned me a little bit because, and again, this is, this is where I got to remind myself, Conrad, that shit changes. The way people look at things change, whether it's music or you know, politics or pop culture, shit, what we drive. I mean, people change their minds about the way they feel about things. And I was surprised that, you know, they, they allowed or, you know, created the architecture for Daniel Bryan to do what he's doing with that belt. You know, dropping the original belt in the garbage, isn't it? I know I didn't see it. I'm only kind of regurgitating what I've read and seen online. But isn't that how that whole start, that whole thing started with Daniel Bryan? Well, the, he, con- the concept is he felt like, uh, you know, he's sort of, he's sort of taking on a heel role, even though really he probably should be a baby face by saying that it wasn't made from sustainable materials and a cow and even named the cow was murdered in order to make the leather on this. He was going to get a more sustainable forward thinking title. So he has a new belt commissioned made of wood and hemp. And it's, it's quite the departure and he's certainly, uh, getting that character over. But as a result now, you know, he has his own world title, much like stone cold had one and the million dollar man had one, et cetera, et cetera. All right. So a couple of things. First of all, you and I should do a show someday on the current product because this is fascinating to me. Fascinating, especially that you said, well, he should actually be a baby face. I, now, that's, you know, we, we all have different ways of looking at things. To me, a guy who, to me, he's a per, he's being a perfect heel. Absolutely. I mean, I want to I stomp on him for this whole sustainable shit, you know, and cow being killed for the leather strap. And I mean, so these, these things are true. But every one of the people that are watching right now, WWF or WWE, I'm sorry, and Daniel Bryan, that storyline, I would say 99% of them consume animal products. Sure. So they can, you know, throw up their virtual signal, you know, flag and, you know, condemn, you know, the fact that they killed a cow to make a belt all they want while they're stuffing their face with Big Macs. so I, I think they're doing a good job with him in terms of framing him as a heel. I'm not sure it'll make people hate him to the extent that they really want. And eventually somebody's going to here's the, here's the scenario I'm guessing will happen. Eventually they're going to keep building him as a heel and he's going to be this, you know, environmentalist, which, you know, I think a lot of people hate him, quite frankly, at least half the country does because they're too extreme, but they're going to take that to a, you know, an extreme level, they're going to try to get heat on them. And then some baby face is going to come along and resurrect and bring back the original WWE world title, in which case they're putting that over. They're, they're putting it back up on a pedestal. So I understand the architecture of that story. If, if indeed I'm even close. Um, but I still think it, I don't want to say devalues the title, but I think it just blurs it. It it's, it's sub, it's using nuanced story and characters to try to define stakes. And I think stakes need to be a much clearer, brighter picture than nuanced storyline, if that makes sense. Paul Orndorff is going to start replacing Rick Rude 
on house show loops because he's injured and the, the target return date is March 1st. As a result, they're going to have to crown a new United States champion and Rick Rude is going to have to be stripped of that title. He winds up missing a, a ton of time here and it ends a 14 month reign as the U S champion, which even today is the second longest reign in the 40 year history of that belt. He never regained the title again. Of course, after this, he would have runs with other belts, but, uh, that's it here. Rick being out here is a huge detriment to WCW because he's one of the top heels in the entire company. Can you speak to, uh, anything about Rick rude and his, because I think everybody knows that this is around the same era where Lloyd's of London becomes a big part of professional wrestling where people are talking about it pretty routinely. He had an insurance policy with Lloyd's of London. That's going to pay him in the neighborhood of $20,000 per month. If he can't work, but it only kicks in once he's missed three months of action. So he's going to have to sit out a while in order to ever have a chance at collecting on this, this Lloyd's of London stuff at one point, you know, was the talk of wrestling behind the scenes. Was it not? Sure. A lot of guys made a lot of money with it. Um, what unfortunately, you know, I reckon I were pretty good friends, you know, leading up to this period of time, we would travel together, you know, from Atlanta and, uh, to whatever house shows or whatever, excuse me, not house shows, but to whatever TV tapings we were doing in the, you know, 300 mile radius of Atlanta, 200 mile radius, whatever it was. Um, so I, you know, I knew Rick pretty well. We never really got into the dynamics of his Lloyd's of London policy. Obviously I was aware of it. Um, there was, as you say, a lot of chatter about it because, you know, the boys were scamming it. You know, talent understood that, and, and Lloyds of London went into it not really understanding professional wrestlers. But what happened with Rick is, you know, when you start reading the fine print, um, it's great. You know, if you can't work any longer, you meet all those standards, blah, 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 the parameters, I should say, then yes, you get your $20,000 a month. However, if you step back into the ring and you go back to work, guess what? You got to write somebody a check. So it, it, yeah, on the one hand, it was a great thing for, I guess, people to take advantage of or an easy thing in some respects, but it was risky and dangerous as Rick found out later on in his career. There's uh, been rumor put out there by the nature boy, Rick Flair, where he said around this time, rude wanted to come back as a baby face. I don't remember ever even seeing Rick work as a baby face. It feels like he was born a heel. Did you ever have a conversation with Rick about him having a run as a baby face? Because Rick has sort of guessed or rumored or freestyled, whatever the right word is here, that Rick wanted sting spot as the top baby face, which probably meant more money, which I understand why anyone would want to make more money, but him as a baby face, I don't see. Never, I never had a conversation with Rick about that. Either driving down a road, or, or as a part of a you know day to day business thing in WCW. Never had that conversation. Not saying he didn't. Not you know contradicting Rick, and saying firmly that that you know Rick never said that. He may have. 
Rude may have had that conversation with a number of people that were close to him that never got to me. And Ric Flair may be absolutely right, but it never, never ended up on my radar in any way, shape or form. They do a uh, title tournament to crown a new United States champion. And Dustin Rhodes winds up winning the tournament when he defeats Ricky Steamboat in the finals by count out when Barry Windham hit DD hit a DDT on Ricky on the floor. Uh, so now Dustin is the new United States champion. Let's briefly touch on the clash of the champions as well, which goes down right before super brawl. It's clash 22, January 13th in Milwaukee, 3,500 fans are there. The building was set for 6,000. It does a 2.9 rating. And at the time it's the second lowest viewed clash in its history. A quick rundown, Cactus Jack beat Johnny B. Bad. Two Cold Scorpio beat Scotty Flamingo, who's going to go on to be Raven. Chris Benoit beats Brad Armstrong. Vinny Vegas, who would later be Kevin Nash, would beat Tony Atlas uh, in a uh, strong man like arm wrestling contest. The wrestling crew, or the wrecking crew, rather, would beat Z-Man and Johnny Gunn. Ricky Steamboat and Shane Douglas would beat the Hollywood Blondes to retain their tag team championships And in the main event, it's a thunder cage match. Sting, Dustin Rhodes, and Cactus Jack would beat Vader, Barry Windham, and Paul Orndorff. What do you remember briefly about that clash of the champions and this, uh, thunder cage concept? Very little. I mean, it was not a standout event. It wasn't something that a lot of effort and thought and time went into. I mean, obviously we had to put a lot of effort and time and thought into it from the way you read that. That sounds like a pretty exciting television show, which is what the clash of the champions was. It was a special um, television show. It wasn't a pay-per-view. It wasn't ending any stories. It was simply a, an opportunity to go into prime time and continue stories and continue, you know, feuds and matchups. So, Sounded like a good show as you read it off, but there was, again, it wasn't like a big standout event in any way. A lot of people were expecting Davey boy Smith to pop up at that show, but it doesn't wind up happening. He's going to make his pay-per-view debut on the show we're covering today. Super brawl. Meltzer would write that, uh, allegedly he has a uh, hundred dates for 19, uh, or he's agreed to work a hundred dates for the coming year for a hundred thousand dollars, but he wanted a separate deal for the European tour. And you've sort of made fun of that recently that there wasn't a second deal. Is that during your era? Or do you think in this era that they, I mean, obviously his value is as a draw abroad and they even bring that up on commentary on this super bowl show as he's making his way to the ring. They're saying, Oh, now don't forget fans tickets are on sale when WCW makes its debut at, and they run through all the European countries they're going to in March. Do you remember uh, this narrative that there was a separate deal for Europe or in this before you're sort of making those decisions, was it possible that that was a thing? I would leave the door open that it was possible that, that Brett may have tried to negotiate for that. I'll even leave the door open a crack. You, you said, you said that, Brett, but you mean Davey. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yes. Thank you for correcting me. Um, yes, I'll leave the door open a crack to suggest that Davey, may have been able or may have tried to negotiate that agreement, a separate agreement. He may have even been successful and I may have not been aware of it because that wasn't my role to be involved in those decisions at that time. That said, leaving the door open, still find it hard to believe that I'm not, not that he tried to negotiate for it, he being Davey, but that anybody ever gave it to him. Now, that being said, 
Maybe he did. I don't know. Uh, and that I can tell you for certain that that contractual you know, structure did not exist when I was involved with, with contracts. Let's talk about, um, the Hollywood blondes feud with Ricky Steamboat and Shane Douglas. They're tearing it up on the house shows where Meltzer's hearing, you know, that they're getting four and a half star matches every night. And in a lot of towns, they've wrestled for more than 30 minutes. So it, that is uh, a bit old school to have a tag match go that long. Something that we don't see these days very often on WWE programming. Did you ever see a Hollywood blondes versus steamboat Shane Douglas match, whether at a house show or a live event that you remember and it really standing out? No, I don't. Obviously I didn't go to house shows, so I wouldn't have seen it there. Now, if it happened on television, um, obviously I would have seen it. I don't recall it. You know, not at least not in a match that would have made it stand out in my mind 20 years later. I'm not saying I didn't see one, but not in a way that made it stand out in my mind. Around the same time, Medusa leaves the company. Meltzer would say, don't know details. I know she wanted to wrestle and the company didn't have ideas in that direction. Do you remember what led to Medusa's departure? Yeah, I think Medusa was frustrated. Again, you know, we've covered this a million times, but. For the new listeners here, you know, I had known Medusa since the day I started really in, in AWA in 1987. So we were, you know, good friends and I wouldn't say we were confidants, but we were pretty tight um, at that time. And I think she was just frustrated. There was not a lot of women available for her to work with. It wasn't, again, go back, look at the revenues, look at the expenses, look at the losses that WCW was incurring at the time. It wasn't like we could... Um, consistently fly some of the best women in the business at that time were all in Japan. There wasn't a lot of women in the United States. There was a few, there was a handful, but it wasn't like we could all of a sudden build a women's division. Um, it just wasn't, it wasn't available. There just wasn't that many women training that had charisma, that had the kind of talent that Medusa had, or a Wendy Richter had, or a Bull Nakano had, or some of the other great, you know, Japanese women. So unfortunately, Medusa was kind of like, you know, on an island to herself. And there was only, there was a limited number of times we could mix and match, you know, mixed tags or, you know, man versus woman type of thing. So it was frustrating for her. And I think she, she made the right move. She wanted to leave and, she was, she was assertive and aggressive and she saw big things for herself. She's very ambitious. what did you think of the way they turned cactus Jack babyface? He, uh, it's, it happened in a street fight when, uh, they're trying to determine, um, or he's with Orndorff and they're going to determine who's going to take the spot at that clash of the champions and cactus Jack, of course, is just throwing himself all over the place. And Harley race shoves cactus lightly and cactus leaps off the apron and clotheslines him. Of course that brings out Vader and they beat up cactus Jack and tore until Orndorff gives them a pile driver. But later in the show, when everybody's doing an interview, cactus comes out with a shovel and nails everybody in sight with the shovel. So it's the first time in two shots now, or two 10 years now that cactus Jack has been a baby face in WCW. He's always been like this crazy maniacal heel. And we know later, you know, Foley's going to be one of the biggest baby faces in the business. What'd you think 
of the way they turned him and Cactus Jack as a babyface. I like Cactus as a babyface. I really did. I didn't like him as a heel. Um, as a as a crazy, you know, insane, do anything to to come out on top in the situation, kind of babyface. I I dug it. I think he look. Mick Foley is not. There's not a. There's not an ounce of heel in his body. He's just one of the nicest people. Now, granted, he's gotten older, and we all get a little. We all we all kind of tone down a little bit as we get older and mellow, and you know, we're no longer in the in the grind, so to speak. But even when Mick was in the grind, even when he was fighting for his spot and fighting for television time and interview time, and as everybody does, it's a competitive business. Um, Mick was just always a really super nice guy. And I believe to this day, I tweeted this the other day, somebody made a comment about, you know, good heels and, and how good heels are made. And my response was good heels aren't made. They're born. And I don't think Mick Foley was born a heel. Uh, He was born a cool, nice guy. And I think him playing a baby face, even though he was a wild ass baby face, just was more consistent with who his real character was, which made it more believable. Let's talk a little little bit about, uh, Magnum TA because around this time, late 92, early 93 Magnum TA is, is no longer with the company. What was his role when you were there and, and how did that come to an end? Uh, when I first got to WCW, Magnum was one of Dusty's right-hand men. Dusty had a group around him, uh, people that he trusted, that he worked with for a long time, that for whatever reason he wanted to surround himself with. And I'm not, you know, I'm not saying it was good or bad or indifferent. I mean, I, I didn't understand the dynamic back then. I was not part of it. So I'm just putting it in context. Uh, Magnum was one of them. Mike Graham was another one. Grizzly Smith, uh, who was Jake Roberts' dad, was one of them. Um, I'm trying to think of who else was really part of his creative crew. I think that might have been it. Those are the people that Dusty confided in creatively, would bounce ideas off of. Um, and that was Magnum's role. He was really there to to hear ideas that Dusty had, perhaps add to them. Again, I wasn't in the room, so I, I can't really comment. But I do know that he was one of Dusty's very trusted confidants, as was Doug Dillinger and Janie Engel, by the way. Not that Doug or Janie had any real influence or even even a voice when it came to creative things. But there was this very select group of people that Dusty su- surrounded himself with that he really, really trusted. And part of that was, I think, to insulate him from the politics, because there were a lot of people that, at that period of time, Dusty felt, and I think justifiably, you know, was out to get him. You know, Ole was probably one of them, Ole Anderson. You know, uh, I will say this again, and I, with all due respect to everybody, you know, Jim Ross and Dusty, you know, didn't really always get along. And that dynamic, you know, again, because it was so political, this was long before WCW became even remotely stable. And I use that stable, I use that term carefully. Um, but at this particular time, it was, it was a real shark tank and Dusty felt comfortable with that group of people. Now, how it, how it came about where uh, Magnum was no longer with the company. I wasn't a part of that process. I'm guessing because of the timing, uh, it 
more than likely had a lot to do with cost cutting on that on the wrestling operations side. It wasn't my choice, by the way. Um, it would have happened prior to me getting involved with the wrestling operations part of the company. Uh, and I'm just guessing it was cost cutting. Let's talk briefly about Paul Heyman. We haven't really spent a lot of time on this, but his end in WCW is near and it's been a, a big discussion amongst a lot of the boys and even in Paul's own documentary. And there's been certain things that he will say or won't say, but he finds himself fired by fax on January 15th and Watts in that fax would claim that there was an investigation into his expense reports that they deemed to be falsified reports from the Ramada hotel, Atlanta airport. And they say that he falsified dates for April, May, June, and July of the prior year. And that they had confirmed with the hotel that he was not registered as a guest on the dates that he claimed in his expense reports and quote, it appears you include induced Ramada hotel to provide false information that you did stay at the hotel to support fraudulent expense reports and attempt to obtain improper payments of approximately $1,200. And Watts claims that there were other falsified expense reports as well. Uh, a total of 39 dates is what gets him in trouble here where he claimed he needed $1,162 and 50 cents to be reimbursed. Now you might be wondering why is he being reimbursed? He didn't have the standard wrestler contract when he signs with Kip Fry in April of 92, he is supposed to be a TBS employee rather than an independent contractor. That's interesting because he's one of the first performers to ever have that designation. And it does set a bit of a precedent because the difference here is he's going to have all work related expenses like road expenses, promotional expenses, and even medical expenses covered by the company. Of course, when Watts takes over, he finds out about this deal, doesn't like it and takes the spotlight away from him. And it's not too long before Paul finds himself on the outs. Pretty controversial moment here in WCW. Lots of people talked about this. It would be the subject of a lawsuit, I believe, but that was decades ago. And these days, Eric Bischoff doesn't give a shit. What do you remember about this? Ironically, because I knew Paul, again, for you know new listeners, I actually worked with Paul in the AWA. Uh, we, we were there for the same period of time. Paul worked with a guy by the name of Rob Oh, I can't remember Rob's last name, but he was from down in Florida. And they were trying to book a lot of buildings and trying to do deals with state fairs and that kind of thing. So I had a little bit of contact with Paul at that time. You know, we were kind of in two separate worlds in terms of what we did every day. So I didn't have a lot of interface with him, but I certainly knew him. And, you know, when I got to WCW, he was one of the familiar faces as a result of that. You know, Paul Heyman, Dallas Page, obviously Larry Zabisco were really the only people that I knew in WCW when I got down there. But even though I was familiar with Paul and I, you know, I don't want to say we were friends, but we were friendly enough. Um, I, I didn't, I didn't hear about any of this. Again, you're talking about a very specific, you know, kind of a narrow period of time here in 92 with regard to Paul, I believe. Um, and at that time my head was, my head was way somewhere else, man. I wasn't, I wasn't, my head was in Hollywood at that time. I was creating and developing and selling shows to Fox network, um, anticipating 
you know, leaving WCW. So what went on behind the scenes in this type of drama or litigation was just so far not even close to my radar that I was really unaware of it. Well, something you were aware is that Eric Watts wasn't over worth a shit. Uh, Meltzer would say that Watts has been booed heavily at every arena he's appeared at. It just doesn't work. The public isn't going to buy him. And each attempt to change that fact just makes things more pathetic. It's time to give up on this experiment and either take him off television and have him learn at the B shows or send him to Oregon or Japan where his father stigma won't prove to be his undoing. And part of this is discussed in the observer because no one believes that the Eric Watts and Arn Anderson angle where Watts put Anderson in an STF at a gas station on TV was very believable and unanimously thought to be pretty bad. What do you remember about Eric Watts and specifically this STF at a fucking gas station? Yeah, I remember that scene because it was so unusual and, and outside of the framework of what WCW would normally try to try to do at that time. Um, I felt sorry for Eric. You know, I, I it became my pretty firm belief even early on. At this point, I was still so new to the business, and I really didn't have a lot of experience or knowledge of the business of the wrestling business, but. It just seemed to me that history was very unkind, probably still is unkind to second and third generation wrestlers for the most part. You have exceptions. Randy Orton, you know, being one of them, obviously The Rock (laughs) being another one. But aside from that small handful, and I'm sure there are others of people that you can really point to that were able to either live up to or exceed you know, the level of success of their father. Um, it doesn't happen. You know, I saw what happened to Greg Gagne. Greg Gagne was not a bad wrestler. Greg Gagne was actually a pretty good wrestler. Unfortunately, you know, he didn't kind of, he didn't work out. He didn't, you know, build himself up to kind of be competitive with what the expectations were of, you know, larger than life characters at the time. But in terms of his, of Greg's psychology, his skill sets in the ring, his ability to make things look believable and real, his ability to work with the guys of a lot of different styles and sizes. Greg was one of probably the better technicians in the country at one point. Unfortunately, you know, being the son of Vern Gagne, yeah, it, it, you, you start three steps behind. You know, I've I've talked about this some, and if you don't mind, Conrad, I'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent here. Sure. Um, if, you know, it started with Garrett. It didn't start with Garrett, but Garrett is, when Garrett came to me and said, Dad, you know, I want to be a wrestler. I want to break into the business. I, I did everything I could to talk him out of it. You know, and I, by the time Garrett came to me, you know, the only place, this was before the indie scene heated up. Right. This is like six years ago, eight years ago. Garrett came to me and said, Dad, I really want to get into the business. I said, Garrett, number one, look at it. There's only one employer. There's only one place to work. And your last name is Bischoff. So guess what? You know, not only is actually becoming talent in WWE so incredibly hard. 
competitive and difficult. And I would guess the odds are probably two or three percent of the people that actually go through the entire process make it to a level that you could consider, you know, a career um, for any kind of a long term. So the odds of becoming successful are so slim. And now add to it, you're my son. Now, I'm not a wrestler, but you still are going to get you. You're carrying that nepotism baggage with you wherever you go, even if you're going to a company where I don't work. So I really tried hard to talk him out of it. But in, in, in so doing, I really thought about, you know, look at Greg Gagne. You know, he never – it was very frustrating for him, I'm sure. He never became the star that his father was. Eric Watts is in that same exact boat. Try as hard as Eric tried. And he did. He was a good, good – I was going to say good kid. He was, he, was a, he was a smart, athletic, committed, level-headed young man when he was trying to make his way in. But – you know, he had that that baggage that he came with, and it was, his baggage was almost worse than mine, or, or Garrett's would have been, because Bill Watts, believe it or not, was considered to be a bigger asshole than even I was <laughs> in, in a relative era. So he had that going against him. And I, I hate to say this, but in you know preparation for the show, when I looked at Super Bowl, Bowl three and I looked at his match, um, he was fucking horrible. Now, was he horrible because they pushed him too soon? Was he horrible because he just didn't have the natural talent and the instincts? Was it horrible because he was just not booked properly and there was no chemistry with the people he was working with? I don't know the answer to that because I wasn't involved. I didn't have a hands-on vibe you know, because I wasn't working with him at the time. But I think anytime you get a second or third generation wrestler, you know, you're starting out in the hole. And Eric Watts, I think, probably started out in a deeper hole than almost anybody. Yeah, I feel bad for Eric, but as a fan at the time, mm. yeah. But I mean, honestly, kind of. I mean, this is where you got to. We, we all, not you, but we. One has to gotta go. You know what? Why hold it against the guy? I mean, yeah, he was. He didn't want to be put in situations he wasn't ready for. It wasn't like he went to to his dad and said, "Dad, you know, I need to be at the top. You know, I want to be. I want to compete for the world tag team title." That was Bill. You know, that was whoever was trying to make Bill happy, I guess, uh, from a booking point of view. But Eric didn't ask for that. He just he got pushed too hard too soon. And the result was inevitable. No, I don't want to pick on him. And, and I certainly understand in real life what the situation was. I'm just saying as a fan, as a little kid, as an 11 year old, I was like, Eric Watts sucks. And so <laughs> he did. He did, I, you know, especially if you don't watch this. I went, ooh, now I know why the guy had so much heat back then because he was just – he was awkward. You know, his timing wasn't there. We'll talk about the match when we get to it, but his timing wasn't there. He was in the ring with some guys who had pretty good timing and who looked crisp and knew – you know, they knew their way around the ring. You could tell when they're in the ring, they knew where they were at every moment. They knew exactly where they were. They knew what eight-inch square inches of ring they were standing in no matter what they were doing. Whereas if you watch Eric, it looks kind of like his feet are not sure where to go and he's not really sure where he is. And as a result, his timing and his execution was horrible. Around the same time, center stage tapings uh, move from Mondays to Tuesdays. You've talked a lot about not really digging center stage. Do you remember why the change was made here from Monday to Tuesday? I do not. I don't know if it was a facility issue or a 
Monday night football issue. I have no idea. It just never, never made it to my desk. Sid gets his release from the WWF in January, late January. And of course, everybody's speculating he's coming to WCW immediately. He winds up making a deal with Ole in early March to return. Were you guys excited about the prospect of Sid coming back? Again, it was just, I mean, obviously I was aware of it. it. It wasn't like, you know, I didn't hear about these things, but I didn't have a strong feeling one way or the other. I never worked with Sid. I obviously I knew who he was from WWF. And anytime you can get a big, larger than life character with it. I mean, Sid had a great look back then, you know, work rate aside, you know, put all the other, you know, common negative commentary aside. If you just looked at a resume and saw this guy, you'd, you'd go out of your way to, to have a conversation with him. So I was, you know, I was aware of it. I was, I guess, anticipating it, hoping for the best, but I didn't feel strongly one way or the other. Cause I didn't have any experience with him. Do you remember anything about Booth Allen management consultants? Meltzer would report that WCW hired them to try to figure out a way to turn around the financial fortunes of the company. Did you ever work with them at any time during your tenure? And I'm sorry, what did you say the name of the company was? Booth, or what did Meltzer say it was? Booth Allen Management Consultants. Okay. It wasn't Booth Allen Meltzer. It was Booz Allen. And Booz Allen is one of probably the largest internal audit companies at that time in the world. And I think they, you know, corporately they've gone on to morph, but they're still, you know, highly credible um, analysts. And a lot of big companies, Coca-Cola, General Motors, you know, Apple, um, hire companies like this to come in and take a total audit of everything in their system. If you're a manufacturing company, they'll look at where you source your materials, how you price your materials, what the acquisition process is. They'll follow uh, if you're in a, you know, if you're manufacturing cars, for example, they will follow the iron ore as it's mined out of the ground and processed to the point where it becomes part of your raw materials to manufacture cars with to make sure that your logistics within that particular system is as efficient and cost effective as it can be. Now, what they did is they didn't come into WCW to try to find ways to save money. They came into WCW to do a complete internal audit of every aspect of the company, from travel to catering to the creative process to the post-production process, you know, to, to marketing, to public every single division of the company went through this internal audit and I found it. Yes, I did work with them. As a matter of fact, I was in a number of meetings with them early on, even before I became executive producer, I was one of the people for whatever reason. And they would pick people randomly. It wasn't like, Hey, we heard about this guy, Eric Bischoff. He's really fucking smart. Let's go talk to him. They would literally, you know, do interviews randomly, literally picking names out of a hat of some of the staff and the employees and people, you know, down the, the corporate, you know, food chain, so to speak, or the corporate structure. And they wanted to hear from them. You know, they interviewed a lot of people that you wouldn't ever expect them to interview to try to get a really, really clear picture of the operation as a whole. So yeah, I, it was Booz Allen, not Booth Allen. And I did spend quite a bit of time speaking to a number of those people about our processes and efficiencies and lack thereof. 
One of the things I wanted to mention here is that, uh, Hulk Hogan has dinner in the CNN center and it even makes the Atlanta journal constitution. He's in the bottom floor of the CNN center in a restaurant there. And of course he's there to discuss a movie deal, not wrestle, but it does lead to a lot of people wondering, and maybe this is by design is Hulk Hogan interested in working with WCW. And Meltzer even says there has been at least preliminary discussion in recent weeks. Was there a buzz in the locker room? This is more than a year before you would sign him, but was there a buzz in the locker room about, wait a minute, Hulk Hogan might have interest. Zero. Not, not zero. And this is the first that I've heard, by the way, that he was in the, if he would have been in the bottom floor of the CNN center, that would have put him either in Jocks and Jill's. Uh, I'm trying to think there wasn't a lot, you know, the only restaurants down on the bottom floor at that time, I believe were Jocks and Jill's. There was a Chinese restaurant next door to the production studio that you could actually sit down in. Aside from that, there, I don't think there was anything on the second, on the bottom floor and up on the, Second floor, the atrium level, there was Reggie's, which was an Irish pub that did serve food. So if he was there, and and of course you had the Omni Hotel, which would have been the atrium level, had a fantastic restaurant. And I would imagine if he was there meeting with executives from Turner about a movie, that's where that meeting would have taken place. But this is the first I've heard of it. Andre the Giant passes away on January 25th. Is Last television appearance, at least in America, is Clash of the Champions 20. So he briefly did appear on WCW TV. Did you ever get the chance to meet Andre? I did, very, very briefly. Uh, after that event, um, Dusty Rhodes and I believe Ole, probably Mike Graham would have been there. Um, we're all sitting at a bar hanging around Andre and I, you know, I came up to the bar with, there was a, there was a number of people that they weren't there by themselves. There was a number of production staff and some talent up there, not as many talent, but I went up and industry was kind enough because I had never met Andre. You know, I obviously I knew of him from the AWA and certainly from WWF, but I didn't, I had never met him. So uh, Dusty saw me from across the room and he invited me over. I wasn't going to just, walk up and introduce myself out of respect. So I, I hung back and Dusty saw me and he said, Hey, come on over. I came over and I met Andre and we may have chatted for 30 seconds or a minute. And then I kind of let the guys have their own time because they all knew each other. You know, they all had history. I was like the young new kid that nobody really knew other than Dusty. So yeah, I met him, but it was so brief. Um, it's hardly worth mentioning. WCW is going to have their first steroid test on February 15th of 1993. Uh, of course, on the other channel, the WWF's having all kinds of trouble with steroid testing. And, uh, well, you know what's going to happen with Vince McMahon. When you found out WCW was doing steroid testing, does anybody even discuss it? Not with me. You know, first of all, the talent's not going to discuss it with me. Um, if I'm executive producer, I'm part of the office. I'm the last person that they're going to discuss steroid use with. <laughs> um, so no, there, there was no, and I, you know, I was aware of it, but again, that was wrestling operations. And then I hate to sound like I didn't care about 
whatever anybody else was doing. But even today, I only care about shit I have control over. You know, if there's something going on in the world and there's something going on down the street and there's nothing I can do to affect the outcome of it, good or bad, then I don't care because I can't afford to care. I may feel sorry for somebody or I may feel bad about a situation, but I'm not going to invest any energy into it if I can't change it. And that's kind of the way I felt about a lot of the things that were going on, like steroid testing. That was just not my wheelhouse. You know, I had my budget. I had my mission. I had my tasks. Um, I, I really stayed within my lane. And again, to avoid a lot of the political machinations and drama that I had seen so much of, I was even more sensitive to staying in my lane and not becoming part of the political problem. Talk to me a little bit about, um, Bill Watts and his contracts, because it does feel like he's pissing off a lot of people here. And we're going to talk about the end of bill in just a minute, but in almost consecutive weeks, we would read in the observer that Johnny B. Bad's WCW contract was going to expire. He was on $156,000 a year guarantee. It was a one-year deal. So now that it's coming to Watts says, Hey, we'll guarantee you 200 events a year, but we're only going to put you $350, but we'll offer you potential bonuses of $150 per show. So he's going from a $156,000 guarantee to working 200 dates for 350 bucks, maybe 500. Meltzer would say odds are good that he'll be in the WWF in March with a new name, but the same gimmick. Of course, that doesn't happen because something happens with Watts and DDP has a similar experience. His contract expires, but he's on the sidelines because he's injured and Watts offers him 300 bucks a night with no guarantee as far as the number of dates. So page rightfully says, I can't sign that if I don't even know how many dates I'm going to get. And the rumor at the time is maybe he'll go try to work for Jim Cornette's Smoky Mountain Wrestling. Lots of people have contracts come and do and have to feel a little insulted here by the offer from Bill Watts. Any recollection of these moments? Oh, sure. (laughs) I heard again, we're kind of bouncing back and forth between when I was the executive producer and before I became executive producer. So this this timing um, during Bill Watts's regime is during that period of time when I was planning on leaving, but I was also Paige's neighbor, and we talked a lot. Um, there were a number of Saturday mornings when Paige would come over to my house around ten thirty or eleven, and he had this uh, Mercedes four fifty SL convertible, an older one, uh, two seater, you know, convertible. And he'd come over and, you know, he'd beep his horn and I'd come out and he'd go, hey, eat, come on, go for a ride. I'd tell Laura, I'd say, okay, I'm going to go for a ride with with Paige. And, of course, we, and not that I condone this behavior, it was wrong then, it's wrong now. But I'm just going to put it out there. We'd crack a beer each and be driving around Atlanta with the top down on a Saturday morning, bitching and complaining about Bill Watts and WCW and how fucked up it was and all of that. And, you know, I not only heard from Paige, I heard from a lot of other people. You know, I I wasn't close to the Steiners, probably closer to Rick than Scott. But, you know, I had a relationship where we would talk openly about things like that. And, you know, Dusty, 
you know, there was a situation, and again, I'll have to look at the timing, but I think it would have been the fall of 92. Yeah, it was the fall of 92. Here's a perfect example of the frustration. That wasn't just money. It had a lot to do with just normal day-to-day life planning. For example, you know, Dusty and I, long before Bill Watts came in, Dusty and I and Doug Dillinger and Dustin Rhodes and, and, and my wife, actually, had all decided we wanted to take a, an out-of-state deer hunt in Wyoming. Now, this is before I built a house here, obviously, but I still always love Wyoming. So we got together. We picked some dates. We all put in in advance so everybody knew that we were going to take our vacation, which theoretically we were supposed to get as employees. But we were going to get our vacations over this period of time, all of which was approved well in advance. We made airline reservations. We put money down with this guide service because it was not an inexpensive um, hunt. It was in the probably six to $8,000 a person range. So there was a, you know, between that and airfare and hotels and all that, there was a significant investment involved. And then of course, right before dust, right before we were supposed to go in the fall, uh, I think it would have been around November. Um, Bill Watts got just ass rash that dusty was going to be gone and I was going to be gone. And, you know, for no reason for me, I was so far down the phone totem pole. I was surprised he even knew I worked for the company, but you know, it was just Bill Watts wanting to control things. You know, he put the kibosh on it. And then he said, all right, you know, we told him, look, here's the approvals. Everybody knew it. Here's what we did. You know, put money down. And finally he relented. But Dusty felt so – he was so paranoid about it that we had a good time. But I could tell, you know, on his mind, he was worried about what was going on back in Atlanta because of the politics and because of Bill Watts and the way he managed so it was it, it was miserable not only with the talent but with with people like Dusty and to a degree myself, which is one of the reasons why I couldn't wait to leave. Well, lots of people are going to get their chance to leave on February second. Meltzer would report there was what he would call major bloodletting at World Championship Wrestling, resulting in significant changing in the corporate hierarchy, including the loss of power for both Bill Watts and more particularly. Jim Ross, Bill Shaw and Bob do who were put in charge of the company nearly a year ago from the now retired Jack Petrick have taken a more hands-on approach in recent weeks, rather than leaving much of the decision makings to Watts. They've divided the company into three categories, a pay-per-view division headed by Sharon Sadello, a television division headed by an unnamed individual who's expected to be named this week and a wrestling product division headed by Watts. Sadello and the television head, whose title will be executive producer of WCW, will have the final say-so on matters relating to their divisions, including the matches that air on television and pay-per-view shows. Since in reality, television is the most important facet of a wrestling company, the new executive producer may wind up as the most powerful person in the front office. The executive producer apparently will be either Keith Mitchell, David Crockett, Tony Schiavone, Eric Bischoff or someone not currently working in the company at present speculation within the company over the past weekend is that Mitchell or Bischoff had the best shot at the position. In addition, the largest booking committee in recorded history was put together to put storylines and decide on who gets pushed. Jim Ross, whose official title had been vice president in charge of television took the biggest fall of anyone. 
He will be removed as a personality from all TBS shows effective March 1st and will no longer be a part of the announcing team on clashes and pay-per-views. And his final major assignment will be the February 21st Super Brawl 3 show from Asheville and the March 7th uh, pay-per-view air date of the January 4th Tokyo Dome card. He's been the lead announcer on every clash since the series began in 88, and he's been a part of the announcing team for every pay-per-view in company history. In addition to being announced as voter or announcer of the year in the Wrestling Observer Newsletter poll by wide margin the last five years, the decision to replace JR or Ross rather as lead announcer and in fact eliminate him from all TBS broadcasts appears to be related to his falling star in the front office when the two different emotions should have been judged on each's individual merit rather than collectively. I suppose those who look at a wrestling show like the 6 p.m. news may knock Ross because of his accent or because he doesn't look like Bischoff, but that would be missing the point that the stars of a wrestling show are supposed to be the performers. The announcer is not akin to a news anchor man, and unless Shivani and in particular Bischoff are as adept at announcing wrestling matches and getting the points that need to be across to the audience better, this decision makes little sense. So let's talk about this. JR is, um, Officially resigning on February 25th. So just less than a week after super brawl, this is his last major show. He was making somewhere between 150 and $200,000 a year. But when this, uh, division of power happens, JR is on his way out. And this unnamed person who's going to become the most powerful person in the front office is the host of this show. Mr. Eric Bischoff. Tell me how you remember all of this going down. Before we get, I, I want I just want to take one step back and, and go revisit what we were talking about with Bill Watts and cutting people's contracts and the difference between, for example, trying to be bad making 156 and then being paid on a nightly. And I and I and I say this not to be defensive or or to prove I'm right, you know, which I'm accused of from time to time, and I know I'm guilty of. But just I want people to keep in mind in terms of timeline context truth versus fiction. I often get labeled or, or saddled with the fact that, you know, I ruined wrestling because I was the first one to offer guaranteed contracts. As we've just discussed in pretty significant detail, as was reported by Dave Meltzer and others, and what was generally known to be true, those contracts existed long before I was anything other than the guy that took out the garbage at WCW. So I just wanted to make that clear because this, this, this podcast gives us the opportunity to really drill into these type, types of situations and provide clarity. So we'll set that off to the side. Now, in terms of Jim Ross and the real transition here and the creation of the executive producer uh, role, um, I'm not sure where Dave was getting his information. I'm not sure where I was in the interview process when this story broke, you know, with Dave. Um, or how he knew I was even in the running, maybe, and maybe, and I'm not not suggesting that he was wrong. By the way, just want to make that clear, because I I do take special pride in kicking his balls when he is wrong. But he may have been right. It may have been pretty well known that I was at least interviewing for the position. I I wouldn't think so. I think that was kept fairly discreet until it was announced. 
uh, because I didn't know who else they were interviewing. For example, I didn't know while I was interviewing that Tony Schiavone was being interviewed. If indeed he was, I don't know. I've never talked to Tony about that. Maybe you know better than I do. I don't know that Keith Mitchell was being interviewed for the process. He may have been. It wouldn't surprise me if he was. David Crockett, same thing. But I wasn't aware of it for sure. I was also aware that they, they meaning Bill Shaw, was interviewing people from outside of WCW. And the main point in all this, and I think what ultimately tilted the decision, was that Bill was convinced he didn't want to bring another wrestling person into that role because they tried that. They've had, they had a number of people from, from Bill Watts to Ole to, you know, the influence of guys like, you know, Jim Ross, we often forget. We don't like to, you know, point any fingers at any individuals that we've now become friends with and we've all moved on in our lives. But, but Jim Ross was very much involved with the creative committee and the booking committee and all of the horrible shit that we laugh at each and every week on this podcast. When we look back at the 92s and 93s, you know, 91, that was, you know, Jim Ross was, had his hand in the cookie jar back then. Um, a lot of people did. It wasn't just one person, but at this particular point, point in time, you know, Dave's reporting that the company was going to be split into three divisions. I'm not sure that was accurate. I ultimately, the company was split into two divisions, one being television and the other being everything else. Bob Dew was in charge of everything else in 93, meaning wrestling operations, um, T talent acquisition, hiring and firing a talent, um, overseeing the creative department. This is where there's some, some um, confusion. And as executive producer, I had no, despite what Dave reported, I had no influence over the creative. None. I had a lot of influence over what that creative looked like once it made television. But I wasn't involved in the storyline process. It, it, the, the company was set up specifically by Bill Shaw and Bob Dew, my, my superiors. I reported – really, I, report, I had a dotted line reporting to Bob Dew, and, and that's the way Bill Shaw wanted it. So we were kind of like co-equal branches of government, if you will. Um, but I didn't have any influence over the things that Bob Dew had control over. Now, it doesn't mean that I didn't – participate in discussions about some of those things when it came to revenues and budgets or lack thereof or, you know, planning for future budgets and things like that. So obviously I, I was part of the conversations, but I didn't have a right to vote. I didn't have the right to, to tell Sharon Sadello how to market a pay-per-view. I didn't have the right to tell Dusty Huey or Oli who he could or couldn't hire. I didn't have the authority to tell Don Sandifer who was in charge of uh, live events how many live events, you know, it made sense to, to produce. So I did have a lot of influence over the actual technical television product, but not everything else. So I think Dave's, Dave's reporting is probably 60% accurate at that time, but there's some very important nuances that were clearly not correct. He says the booking committee, uh, coming out of this is supposed to be Bill Watts, Dusty Rhodes, Greg Gagne, Bill Dundee, Jim Barnett, Keith Mitchell, Ole Anderson, Jim Ross, Larry Zbysko, Sharon Sadello, Mike Graham, Eric Bischoff, and Michael Hayes. And if Michael, if Ric Flair comes back, he's of course got a spot here. 
And allegedly even Sid vicious was promised a spot on the committee. What? Now this doesn't last very long. Let me tell you, Bill Watts resigns as vice president of wrestling operations on the morning of February 10th. So just eight days later and in a meeting with the department heads on the 12th, two days after he steps down, it's announced that Ole Anderson is going to take over Bill Watts position. And Eric Bischoff is named as executive producer for all of WCW television. Shocking. Oh my God. That's so shocking. Did you, <laughs> um, did you need blue chew that day or when they're making that announcement, are you ready to go? No, I, that was a really amazing time in my life. And I think if anybody, I mean, you know how you always say, Conrad, you're just a fan. You know, well, you're just a fan that, you know, ended up in the middle of a, you know, a hurricane that you created with the success of, you know, your podcast with Bruce Pritchard and then Tony Schiavone and then me. Now you're, you know, you're doing stuff with the guys from All In. You got three of the top podcasts in, in the world in this category. You're doing personal, you're doing live shows with Bill, excuse me, with uh, Bruce and, and Tony and myself every weekend. So you've gone from, hey, I'm just a fan in Alabama to kind of being, you know, a life force of your own in this new world that you've helped create. I felt that same way. You know that feeling when you get up in the morning and you're so excited about it because it's all so new to you. You just can't wait for the sun to come up. It's like, fuck, I want to get to work. I don't want to go to bed. Sleep is for, yeah, nobody needs sleep. We can all work 24 hours a day because it's fun. That's kind of the way I felt. I, it was such a special moment for me in my life. And it, I, I had nothing to lose. And that was the most freeing feeling I've ever had in my life. That's the best way to describe it. And even now, you know, 20 some up, 30 years later, whatever it's been, 25 years later, I look back at that time and I, I value it only to the extent that it helped me understand what's really the most important things in life. And being in a situation where I've got nothing to lose and everything to gain is a situation I will continue to put myself in for the rest of my life because it really makes me feel alive in a way that nothing else can. And that's the way I felt back then. I mean, I, I would wake up, you know, early, early in the morning and, you know, wake Lori up and just, I'd just rattle off the things that I would, you know, I wanted to try to do. And, you know, my, my favorite two words in life are what if, what if I do this? What if we try that? What, you know, what if there's a way that we can make these things happen? If, if, if any time a conversation starts out with what if, you know, I get blue chewed up naturally, I get all excited. And, and then you start, you know, embracing all the possibilities. That is the most freedom that I think I've ever had. Has nothing to do with the amount of money I had in the bank. Has nothing to do with anything other than I'm in a situation where I have absolutely everything to gain and nothing to lose. I love that. I loved it then and I still love it to this day. I uh I don't know how to transition to this, but we need to talk about the real reason Bill Watts is out of here. He did an interview in the Pro Wrestling Torch in the summer nineteen ninety one annual. And later it would be published in the wrestling world examiner newsletter 
and it has comments from Bill Watts about Adolf Hitler and Nazi Germany. And this is also happening around the same time that Marge shot from baseball fame was really under fire for some of her controversial comments. The interview that he does here is faxed to Hank Aaron by Mark Madden of all people, a torch columnist. And of course, a sports writer in Pittsburgh. And now he has a hit talk show there on February 9th. This fax comes in and Mark is asking Hank Aaron for his comments on the interview. Hank then takes the interview to the TBS president, Terry McGurk, and an announcement is made the next day that Watts has resigned. In the interview, Watts advocates, if you're a business owner, you should be able to discriminate and uses some really harsh language where he says, it's my business. It's my investment. So he should get to pick who he serves and he has homosexual slurs. And this then says something like do blacks discriminate against whites who's killed more blacks than anyone, the fucking blacks. But they want to blame all that bullshit roots that came out on the air. That roots was so bullshit. All you have to do if you want to find slaves is hand beads to the chiefs and they gave you the slaves. What is the best thing that ever, ever happened to the black race? Well, it's that they were brought to this country. No matter how they got here, they were brought here. And you know why? Because they intermarried and got educated and they're the ones ruining the black race. You go down to the black countries and they're all broke. Blah, blah, blah. You get the idea. Obviously this lands up in, in Hank Aaron's hands and a decision is made, but I mean, some really, really idiotic stuff out of his mouth here about not only that, but homosexuality and he doesn't want to serve a homosexual. He shouldn't have to, but he doesn't use the word homosexual. You probably picking up what I'm putting down the following week. Mark Madden has a follow-up interview with Hank Aaron, where he admits that He took it to the TBS president and, um, he says it was horrible. They were horrible statements in this day and age for anybody, regardless of whether he made them or anyone else. It's just despicable. Really, regardless of whether you work for a company, work for yourself or whether you're independent. And he's comparing it to the statements that Mark shot had made where he said that she was banned from baseball as a result of that, by the way, he says, it's the same thing. It's one of the same. I can't say Marge was worse. Really an unbelievable thing to say ever, but especially in 1993, you know, when there's just so much going on, you should know better by 1993. Should you not? Of course. And I, it's interesting that this came out in the newsletter, I guess, 92, late 92, and it didn't really hit the fan until... January, February of 93, I was unaware of it when it first landed. Was it Wake Heller, I think? PW yeah, Torch? The Torch, that's right. Yeah, I would, when it when it happened, it was off my radar. I mean, that's how little attention I was. I wasn't reading dirt sheets. I wasn't talking to people. You know, again, 1992, Bill Watts, Eric Bischoff was looking for other shit to do. I was not concerned with what was going on at WCW, even on the peripheral including dirt sheets. So I didn't really hear about that in 1992. I did hear about it, obviously, in 93, like everybody else. But what was really interesting, well, 
don't know if it's interesting or not. That was obviously, you know, the telephone pole that broke the camel's back. I, was, I don't want to say the straw that broke it, but that was a telephone pole. I mean, that was, he might as well, metaphorically speaking, put a gun in his mouth and blew his brains out career-wise because there's no coming back from that kind of ignorance and, and racism and stupid judgment. I mean, to say that publicly in a wrestling-based newsletter that everybody knew every, you know, that Jeff Carrs of TBS and other executives in TBS read those dirt sheets. It's not like they only ended up, you know, in a small handful of people's homes who, you know, love to read about the behind the scenes of wrestling. These these sheets ended up in people's hands who ultimately had some influence. So, I mean, just Bill's, forget about how awful and ignorant and backwards and all of that those statements obviously were. The fact that he was dumb enough to speak them out loud was was just as bad. You know, and what made it, I think, the the final telephone pole, final straw, was that that was – that was the obvious. That had somebody had to take action about that. But the lead up to that, now I want to be really, really explicit. I am referring to an incident that I heard occurred that I was not at. So I don't want to become guilty of doing the same things that I bust other people's balls of doing. I want to get really clear: this is not firsthand information. And but I do believe it to be true. There was a meeting right before this incident where, where, where the story actually broke and, and Bill got let go or allowed to resign, um, where Watts was having a meeting, and it might have been with a number of those individuals who were part of the booking committee. Uh, I wasn't there, so I clearly wasn't one of them. But where and it, you, it, it can't, there was a conference room in, in WCW offices at that time that had a balcony on the 15th floor, 14th floor, that looked out over the side of the CNN Center. So if you were standing out on that balcony, you could literally, you know, drop a nickel and it would land in the street. Uh, I can't remember the name of the street was, but whatever. And it was sometime, I think around January, where Bill was, you know, holding court and he had everybody in the room and it had a big sliding glass door that would lead out into the patio. It was a very nice setup, right? And in the middle of the meeting, without adjourning the meeting or saying, everybody, excuse me, according to someone who was in the room that relayed the story to me, Bill Watts got up in the middle of the meeting, opened up the sliding glass door, went out to the balcony and took a leak off the balcony down onto the street. Now, I wasn't the only one that heard that story. And that's the type of thing that whether you're in the room, not in the room, or even if a version of that happened, by the time that filters around the office, it gets pretty graphic. And there was there was some of that kind of Bill Watts vibe going around. So there was all it was already leading up to this guy's just not gonna it's like he was trying to get fired in a way. That's the way he be- behaved in so many respects um, that by the time, you know, the Mark Mann story broke, it was like, OK, we're not even going to talk about this. We just we got to get rid of this guy before he takes us completely under. It, it's really crazy to me because, you know, I know that, um, as you said, you know, it's one thing. It, it's horrible to even have those thoughts, much less to say them out loud. 
But my goodness, you know, the Rodney King stuff happened in 91. The riots were in 92. This March shot thing happened in November of 92. It is just the absolute, like, forefront of the conversation in America. And to go do an interview like this is just unbelievable. I mean, you know, I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist, and I don't want to try to be pretend to be one on a podcast, but when you look at all the stupid, crazy, you know, suicidal shit that Bill Watts did in term from a, from a corporate perspective, um, you know, he'd wear a gun to the Omni. Now I'm a second amendment guy. I have a permit to carry a gun. I never do. I, I just like to know that if I need to, I can, but Bill Watts, you know, he let everybody know he was packing heat when he came into the CNN center, including me. I mean, he made everybody aware of it. That's so dumb. It, it, you know, it is. I mean, look, I don't want to get into Second Amendment stuff or people should or shouldn't carry guns. That's a personal choice at this point. But if you if you do take on that responsibility, the dumbest fucking thing you can do is advertise it. You don't do that. You know, you keep that shit to yourself. If you feel the need to protect yourself, the last thing you want to do is wear a sign around your neck saying, hey, everybody, I'm carrying a gun. I'm protecting myself. What a guy like Bill Watts would do is that's how he intimidated people or tried to intimidate people. I thought he was a clown. Personally, when I saw that, when that became you know something I became aware of, I, I didn't have a lot of respect for Bill Watts from the – well, I gave him about a month and then I started losing respect for him. But once that became – obvious to me what he was you know carrying and letting everybody know he was doing it i was able to crystallize my my view of him as being a bully and usually bullies are very insecure very weak people they may be able to beat the fuck out of you but that doesn't mean they're secure people they're very insecure you know bill happened to be a big guy with a head the size of a fucking kia and he was intimidating to a lot of people physically but mentally I looked at him as a very weak, insecure person. Once those kinds of things, you know, you start, there's a dot, there's a dot, there's a dot. Let's connect the dots. Oh my God, there's a picture. And it's, now it's a three-dimensional picture. But those little, you know, the, the stupid-ass interview he did, which was so in the face of, as you put, public discourse and common sense and civility. I mean, who does that? Right in the middle of the March shot, Rodney King, you know, kind of controversy. Here's a guy that's going out speaking to a wrestling newsletter that he knows speaks to the wrestling community that if he had a fucking brain on his head, he would know was going to end up over, you know, uh, on the North Tower, which is where all the executives were. Um, Dumb. It's like career suicide. Bring a gun to work. Let everybody know. Dumb. Career suicide. This is back in 92. This is before Second Amendment became very common. And, and, and prevalent in, in, in society, um, bullying wrestlers and trying to intimidate guys like the Steins. Are you fucking kidding me? Who does that? And now this, you know, it's like, I, I think the guy knew he was in over his head when he took the job. I think the guy knew there was no way he was ever going to make it work. And I think a lot of the things that he did were a manifestation of his frustration and insecurity. There you go. That's me being not being a psychiatrist. It's just incredible to me. And I don't even know, I mean, how that's even a real story, but there it is. That's how Bill Watts sort of came to an end in WCW. It's weird to wrap your head around, especially when you know that he had JYD as his top star and he crowned the first ever, you know, 
world heavyweight champion of African-American descent with Ron Simmons. And of course he had that relationship with Ernie Ladd. And how do you process all that? It's just, you know, think about this though, Conrad, and I don't want to, and again, I apologize for interrupting you, but just because Bill Watts made Ron Simmons first African-American world heavyweight champion, just because he had JYD, you can't automatically assume that he was a liberal person. Oh, no, no, I'm I'm not suggesting that. I'm just saying of all the people who have this opinion and know, you know, what's okay to say and what's not okay. Like there's, I mean, how fucking tone deaf are you to be the same guy who on the one hand has Ernie Ladd as like your right hand man and your top star is JYD and you're going to, you know, have a major departure for a North American wrestling company and and make a, a black heavyweight champion. But at the same time, like, well, I shouldn't have to serve him if I want to. Like, who the fuck does that? He's the most complicated asshole maybe in the history of wrestling. You and I agree 100% on that. I want to be clear. I'm not defending Bill Watts. Uh, let me just state clearly for the record right now. Fuck Bill Watts and anybody who likes him. Uh, and I know what I just said, and I don't take it back. Like, that's some shitty stuff to say. Uh, let's get to Super Brawl. A sellout here, 7,500 fans on attendance. And by the way, we've talked about everything but the pay-per-view. So tell your friends, if you haven't already, uh, go listen to 83 weeks, because although the name of this is Super Brawl 3 from 1993, we're really not talking about Super Brawl 3 until the very end. We're talking about how we got there. And that's, I answered some criticism this week about, golly, you guys only spent X number of minutes on the show. It must have been, oh, well, we've got 30 minutes left. Let's hurry up and talk about the pay-per-view. No, I'm not a wrestler. Eric's not a wrestler. We're not going to spend a lot of time talking about headlocks and wrist locks. We're going to talk about the business of WCW, which is what we've been doing here. And hopefully you're digging it. And if you are, tell your friends to listen to every episode. Don't just pick and choose based on what you think the topic is, because nobody would have ever thought based on the title of this. Oh, they're going to get into Bill Watts and Paul E and all that other fun stuff. All right, here we go. Super brawl sell out 6,500 fans, 6,200 of those were actually paying $55,000 at the gate and had an estimated 0.5 buy rate. So nearly a million dollars, 980 grand in pay-per-view revenue. The buy rate would be at best the third lowest of any major promotion pay-per-view event, slightly ahead of the 92 beach blast and great American bass shows. During the period where WCW tried to run three pay-per-view shows in a nine-week stretch, at worst, it would be the lowest buy rate ever for a major WCW pay-per-view. Um, to start the show, it's you, front and center, with Missy Hyatt, and you guys are explaining that Ron Simmons is unable to compete tonight, so stepping in for him will be Max Payne to challenge Dustin Rhodes for the United States Championship you watched this back for the first time in a long time this week. What did you think of the way you had this set up and the way you and Missy were hosts to get us kicked off? Again, to be really clear as we go forward in this, I didn't format this show and I want to, we're going to probably refer back to the format of this show quite a few times after watching it, but that was not something as the executive producer. Now in all honesty, as executive producer, I should have had, kind of control over the format of of this pay-per-view. But at this time, now it changed later, but at this time I didn't. 
So I want to make that clear right off the bat because there's so many things about this format that, you know, were wrong. And opening up the show with <laughs> Missy and I was clearly one of them. It's just there's no energy there. We didn't really, in that setup to the show, we didn't really do a very good job building in any anticipation. One of the things I noticed was lacking was any kind of real focus and, and emphasis on the main event, which kind of is what it's all about. And we started off, you know, we spent, we spent a lot of time right at the beginning of the show where you, you know, that's where you make your first impression. You literally, I, I firmly believe this to this day. Um, and I learned this from another really, really creative executive producer, um, who is since departed, but, um, it's one thing he said to me and I, I try to employ it every opportunity I can now when I'm approaching creative is that the end always hangs on the beginning. No matter what kind of story it is, if it's that, well, I should say that generally really effective stories, especially in television, tend to use a formula where the end of the story clearly is dependent upon and hangs on and is connected to the very beginning. Now, that seems really simple when you say it. It's like, oh, yeah, fuck, whatever. That makes sense. Write that down. Never have to think about it again. But when you start formatting things, sometimes it's easy to forget. Because you've got a lot of things to do, a lot of boxes to check. And I look back at this and I thought, what a fucking waste of whatever, however many minutes that was, like two or three minutes, probably two and a half. What a waste. It did absolutely nothing. And by the way, I sucked horribly. I pushed so hard. I, you know, I noticed that, and I noticed this more after watching the entire pay-per-view. Every time I came up, um, my presentation, my, my style, if you will, um, was like at a constant eight. I never took it down to a four so that I could bring it up to an eight for emphasis. I never varied the way I presented the information I was presenting. And I think as a result, people just tune out. It's like a news reporter, you know, breaking news today, you know, and, and lay out the, the headline and then continue to tell you the entire two pages of the story at the same intensity as they read you the headline. You just kind of fucking tune it out. And that's one of the things I noticed about my performance at that time was that I was at a constant eight and didn't know how to shift gears. I thought Missy was – look, Missy was what Missy was. And I had to remind myself watching this pay-per-view that, you know, let's not compare a pay-per-view in 1993 to a pay-per-view in 98 or to a pay-per-view in 2018 because everything's changed. You can't compare an NFL Super Bowl game from 1964 to the game that was just played today. Everything looks different. Game is played different. Athletes are different. Lighting is – everything is different. So I had to kind of remind myself of that. You know, Missy was mostly a character. She wasn't really there to drive story or, you know, create drama or build anticipation. She was a character. She was there kind of to be the ditzy – you know, semi-heelish, selfish, you know, hot-looking bimbo is really what she – she was – Her that was her character. She, You know, well, she was not a brain surgeon. So it was what it was as far as Missy's performance. I don't think it was good or bad. I think she was doing what she was asked to do. Um, but that's how I felt about that. Well I – feel, I feel like Forrest Gump. That's how I feel about that. All right, let's talk about the first match here on the show. 
We've got the Hollywood Blondes, Brian Pillman and Stone Cold Steve Austin, back before he was Stone Cold, beating up Eric Watts and Marcus Alexander Bagwell. During the match, Ventura even asked Tony, why do they boo him every time he gets in the ring? Talking about Bill Watts and or, or Bill Watts' son, Eric Watts. And Tony says, are you sure it's booing or is it ooing? Wow. Uh, two stars okay, here. Tony was doing his best to protect the business. He was, you know what I mean? What a tough spot to be in. No doubt. And why, but why would, why would Ventura even say that? Like, just let it go. Well, and that's, you know, here's the challenge with a guy like Ventura and Mark Madden was much the same way. These guys got over by, I mean, two different, you know, roles, if you will, but they got over by being contrarians i guess if that's the right word sure but doing the exact opposite of what you probably should do or would do in any given situation or the average person you know that's part of what got you know jesse over is he would just come out and blurt shit that you would never expect to hear in his heel character and a lot of times that that technique works and it's very effective and sometimes it crosses the line and it goes the other way I mean, as to why he said it, Jesse was trying to get Jesse over. That's pretty much Jesse's primary modus operandi back then. Um, and I'm not bagging on him for it. Um, it just is. It was what it was. He, Jesse was concerned about Jesse. You know, you use Tony as, you know, the kind of 180 degree antithesis of that. You know, here's Tony trying to cover for something that hurts the talent. And, you know, you got Jesse trying to bury the talent. I think I think Jesse went over the line. The one thing I wanted to talk about here, because you know, once we got out of Missy and Eric and Max Payne and the fucking horrible Johnny B. Bad appearance, um, and by the way, Johnny B. Bad, I feel sorry for Johnny Mark Merrill as I'm watching this show. I'm thinking, oh my god, he must have felt so horrible having to do all this shit. But they murdered, murdered Johnny B. Bad's character on this episode. If there was ever an opportunity for Johnny B. Bad to get over this pay-per-view absolutely nuked it. And we'll talk more about that later. But after we got out of that crap, then we went to Jesse and Tony. My first impression of watching them set up the show is Jesse was real, aside from that stupid comment that he made during the Eric Watts match, um, Jesse kind of, Jesse felt good here. You know, he'd only been with the company for about a year. The, the bloom had not fallen off the rose, so to speak. Um, he wasn't carrying around some of that negativity and hostility that he did towards the end of his career. And he was actually kind of refreshingly good Jesse with, you know, one or two exceptions here. I thought the match was too long though. Um, I don't know. I would have shortened it up. Uh, you guys do briefly come back, um, and say that Rick Flair's here tonight and that gets a big pop from the crowd, a big chant from the crowd. You shoot a bunch of Ric Flair signs and there's a cutaway where we see Ric Flair getting out of a limo and, uh, the head of security, uh, ushering Missy away. And it's a, it's a fun little skit, whatever it is, but his return to WCW being featured here. I mean, it's a big part of the show, is it not? It absolutely is. I mean, that was the buzz in, you know, the periphery of the wrestling industry, the, the, dirt sheets and <clears throat> whatever. Um, it was certainly a big part of the conversation within Turner Broadcasting. I think everybody, Turner Corporate was excited. 
because they felt it was a mistake to have let him go in the first place. Uh, so, yeah, there was a lot of buzz. Hey, keep in mind, where are we? We're in you know, Asheville, North Carolina, for crying out loud. I mean, other than Charlotte, is there a better place on the map um, to bring back, you know, Ric Flair other than Asheville? So, of course, you know, the entire show was really – there was a lot of things going on in the show. Seeing Vader, obviously, in the main event being the focal point or should have been. But, Rick, I think – the underlying really big point was that Rick, Rick Flair was coming back. It kind of overshadowed everything, and it should have. Next up, we get Chris Benoit making his WCW pay-per-view debut, and he's going to lose the two-cold Scorpio with a roll-up in 18 minutes and 46 seconds. Wade Keller would give it three and a half stars. Pretty fun match for what it was. Uh, I can't I can't say that it was exactly what I expected, but I enjoyed it. What would you think? Really interesting for me, really, really interesting, and especially going back in that this, the, the context of this time and all of the the choices, the influences, decisions that would manifest, you know, three, four, five, six years later. You know, we're seeing that here. I think it was Bill Watts, <clears throat> might have been during 92 when Watts was in charge, was the last attempt or was the most recent attempt back then to try to have some kind of as the as the term is you know so overused in the wrestling industry today a working relationship with new japan and like so many things under the watts regime and era um the the relationship between new japan and wcw became very fractured um and to the point where you know there was some real heat there and i wasn't a part of the process so i I, I can't speak to it with a lot of specificity, but there was financial, you know, disagreements. There was creative disagreements, all kinds of heat between WCW and really Bill Watts uh, and New Japan. But what you're seeing on this pay-per-view was kind of the remnants of that relationship. And Chris Benoit, I believe, we'll go back and look, but I believe the reason he was there was because of New Japan. The reason I hired Chris Benoit years later was because of Chris's relationship with New Japan. So that remained constant. But this would have been one of the first times that I can recall ever being really exposed to Chris Benoit. It's a fun match to go back and watch. If you haven't already, you should probably go check it out just because of the historical significance, you know, knowing you know, what side of shift WCW's on at the time and the contributions that, uh, well, you know, the rest, uh, next up, if we we can't kind of run and I'm sorry again to, to jump you here, but I don't want to, you know, fail to talk about too cold Scorpio, who I think, you know, if you go back and watch this match, first of all, I think you're seeing early Chris Benoit. Chris Benoit clearly evolved as a performer. I think he got much more crisp, much more confident. Um, his moves, when I say crisp, I mean everything looked way more believable. And and the speed at which, the pace at which that that Chris would work. And I'm not talking about whether he got through a match in two minutes or nine minutes, but everything he did was so crisp. And when he did do something, he executed it so quickly, it made it look even more believable. But that's Chris Benoit as we see him, I think, later on in 94, 95, certainly 96, 97, 98. But here he's, you know, he's got really long hair, which is odd looking, you know, when I see him now. And again, you know, back then that was cool, I guess, uh, or was. 
But, you know, to see him in that really long, below-the-shoulder-length hair is odd. And really, but just to watch his style of wrestling and the way he executed in the ring and how much it changed over the course of really three or four years is something I think that's fascinating to go back and look at. Without question. Next up, you guys interview Max Payne. Uh, and then the British Bulldog would pin Bill Irwin in his WCW pay-per-view debut. Gets three quarters of a star. And after the match, Tony would interview the Bulldog, and he says he's in WCW to become the world heavyweight champion. And he's excited to see Vader's match later tonight, but he's got his set sight on him down the road. What'd you think of the uh, Max Payne interview and then the Bulldog match here? Oh, the Max Payne interview is hard to watch. You know, and I didn't remember working with him much. Like, if you would have called me up on the phone a couple of days ago and said, hey, what do you remember about Max Payne? I, you know, I, I would have had to try real hard to come up with 30 seconds of conversation about him. After seeing this now, you know, obviously more of it came back to me. Um, but this was pretty fucking horrible. I, I don't know another way to say it. Uh, the character was kind of really ill-defined. You know, was he a heel? Was he a baby face? Kind of hard to have a heel come out there, you know, shred a fucking electric guitar playing the national anthem or Star Spangled Banner, whatever it was. Kind of, if he's a heel, then, well, you just killed that. <laughs> you know, there's a there's a certain amount of basic psychology, I think, that should go into some things. And having your heel come out and playing the national anthem or Star Spangled Banner, I guess it was, a la Jimi Hendrix at Woodstock is probably not the right thing to do. Let's talk about, uh, the next match. It's supposed to be Cactus Jack and Paul Orndorff in a false count anywhere match. And it is, but man, they get a hot start because you're backstage interviewing Orndorff when almost immediately there's a noise behind him. And it turns out it's Cactus Jack slamming a shovel on the concrete. And he gives chase to Paul Orndorff who comes through the curtain and into the arena. Pretty fun way to start the match. Some crazy spots here, including where Cactus Jack gets suplexed onto a guardrail and takes it just directly on the back. I don't mean when the guardrail's laying over. I mean, while it's upright, crazy spot that we've seen him do a lot, but this one really stood out to me for some reason, 12 minutes and 18 seconds later, cactus Jack gets the pinfall win over Paul after hitting him with a chair. What'd you think of this match? I, I know you're not a fan of these, but I enjoyed it. I was a fan of this one. You know, there are times <clears throat> and reasons more importantly, there are reasons to have this type of match if a, if a story is being told properly and the story and the arc of that story escalate to a point where this match and only this style of match, the street fight, no holds barred, and anything goes kind of match is the only way a, a story should and could come to an end. I do believe that. And this is a perfect example of that. I don't know exactly what all the buildup was in, in each one of their characters and what we try to establish to make the substitution, you know, make sense. But the match itself, to me, um, it worked, you know, and part of it may have been because I think so fondly of Paul Orndorff, still do to this day. Got a lot of history with Paul, some of it very personal, some of it I cherish. Um, and I look back at Paul in this particular match and he's at the top of his game. I mean, you still, you can tell by looking at him. Yeah. He's, 
he's that pinched nerve is affecting his, I think it was his right arm, his shoulder. And it's a little bit apparent, you know, looking at him physically, but he still looks better than nine, 99 and nine tenths percent of most males walking the face of the earth at this time. His work rate was still really good. He was believable. Um, I just, I love Paul Orndorff's work. And this was probably one of the last looks you get at some of Paul Orndorff when he might've been on his way down, but he still looked damn good. I think Cactus Jack's character worked really well here. Um, he made it work. And like I said, I, I love the whole match. It was a fun show, uh, for sure. I mean, probably my second favorite match besides the main event, uh, rock and roll express are out next and they're going to beat the heavenly bodies when Gibson would pin Pritchard in 13 minutes and 13 seconds, three and three quarter stars is what, uh, it gets in Wade Keller's pro wrestling torch. And Meltzer would say that the resignation of Watts is going to put an end to this talent trade with Smoky Mountain Wrestling, and this is the last of those. This sort of stuck out like a sore thumb to me, but I enjoyed the wrestling because I'm an admitted uh, Pritchard and Rock and Roll Express and Cornette Mark. What did you think? I became one during this match, actually watching it uh, in back. Not when it happened. You know, when it happened, I was probably kind of paying attention to it, kind of not paying attention to it and paying attention to a lot of other things that I needed to at that time. But as I go back and look and, you know, honestly, I, I look at things differently now than I would have, even if I would have sat down and watched this match and studied it on a monitor, my feelings about it now are different than my feelings about it or would have been then. Right. Cause my tastes are different. My knowledge is different. My experience is different, but this match, you know, I'll sum it up as best I can. As much as I have fun busting Cornette's balls from time to time, um, this match made me believe why, why Cornette believes the way he does today. You know, so much of the stuff that that Cornette says today are some of it's relevant. I think some of it is just because he had the height of his career during a certain point in time that made the largest impression upon him. And he's never been able to shift gears out of that period since. But if you go back and watch this match, it's not just a tag team match. It's not just four guys. You know what I mean? So many tag team matches that I watch. That's why I've never really been a big fan of tag team matches because generally they're just four guys having singles matches. And every once in a while, they make a tag. There's no, there's no teamwork that's evident other than making tags for the most part. I'm not saying that's always true. But generally speaking, when we watch a tag team match today, we're watching four people who are really working probably 85% of the time independent of each other, right? Whereas if you go back and watch this tag team match, from the beginning to the end, and I wasn't a big fan of the finish of this match, by the way, but we'll talk about that at the end. But if you go back and watch this match from the beginning to the middle to the end, through about you know part one or act one, you know the first third of the match, um, it's all just really tight teamwork. And now there's a reason why there's that word again why you have a tag team match. What is, what's so unique? Why is a tag team match unique? Well, it's unique because the team, the individual teams have this unique 
talent to work together in such a you know a, an effective way that it makes them a better tag team than the other tag team. That was really evident. That that formula was really evident in this match. Whereas today, I don't think you see that. You just see four guys tagging in and out. And really, really good tag teams. And I'm not an expert on this because it's never been something I've really loved. I've never loved tag teams. But seeing this match made me realize why many people do. Because the potential is there for that art form to play itself out in a way that's different than the other matches on the card. Because you don't see that in the other matches, in singles matches. So I, I really liked it. I can't put it, enough, put it over enough. Um, I find it, you know, I don't remember Tom Pritchard you know, ever being on a, on a show that I was involved with. So that was kind of cool to see Tom there. I've, I've only recently gotten to know Tom You know, I've known Bruce for a long time, but I've only recently, you know, crossed paths with Tom and hung out with him a little bit and got to know him. So it was kind of fun going back and seeing this and remembering, um, or being reminded is a better way to say it, that Tom Pritchard was on this, on this show. Stan Lane looked to me like a little baby Lex Luger with shorter hair. Um, another little note I made to myself. They could have been like cousins or twins or something. Rock and Roll Express looked phenomenal. This might not have been the peak of their career, but they were certainly not far from it. I thought they looked absolutely great. But I, I did not like the finish. It was just, eh, I want to, I don't know, I want to be really careful how I say this. Let's, let's put it this way. It was a finish that was very typical in the southeastern part of the United States at the time. I'm picking up what you're putting down. Next up. No, 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 you're not. No, you're not. No, you're not. The Southeast, because I want to make sure nobody misunderstands me. The Southeast was primarily a weekly territory. Weekly territories had very episodic finishes that required this kind of a cluster at the end. The audience was accustomed to it. I'll also say, before we move on, Check out the reaction. I encourage everybody. Go back wwenetwork.com. Go to the vault section. Choose WCW. Go to the pay-per-views. Choose Super Bowl three. Super Bowl three. Look at this match in particular. And I've said this before. Defending some of the you know otherwise stupid things I may have done from time to time, or booking decisions I made from time to time. I always go, yeah. Go back. Look at the finish. Watch the crowd reaction. Now criticize it. I'll say that here. Not only was the match a great match. But go back and watch the crowd reaction. Even though I don't like the finish because I think it was too, it was overused, really overexposed. But look at the reaction from the crowd. There's a guy wearing a sting shirt, right center, hard camera, front row, that loses his shit over this finish. So um, it was a it was a great tag team match. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the next match here, which I know you're excited about: Dustin Rhodes and Max Payne. Dustin gets a win by DQ, 11 minutes and 38 seconds. He retains the U.S. title when Payne threw the referee into Dustin for the DQ. It gets one star in the torch. This is a miss for me. What say you? Yeah, same thing. I mean, the whole Max Payne thing, it was a miss from the get-go. There were no stakes in this thing that really made any sense. The character didn't make any sense. Um he wasn't really a heel. He wasn't really a baby face. He was just this freakishly looking big guitar player. Um, his Max Payne's promo was uninspiring. It didn't create any urgency or stakes or interest or anything at all to compel me. It was just a fucking waste of time. And I'm not a big fan of no finishes. 
I think it's great for TV to do a no finish because it it helps set up the episodic you know nature of television where you've got to revisit it and try to get a finish. But to have a no finish on a pay per view, even though I'm guilty as charged, fuck it, I did it, I know. But the more I see it, the more I understand why it's such a bad idea. It's convenient. It can work. It's easy to justify. Get everybody to nod their head and go, okay, I guess that makes sense. So from that point of view, yeah, it works. But from the consumer's point of view, the audience's point of view, it's just, God, let's see. Give me a flat, no talent, no charisma, ill-defined or not defined character and let's put him in a match that doesn't have a conclusion. Yeah, that's pretty bad. Well, what's not bad is the nature boy, Ric Flair returning. He's going to come out to do an interview here. Comes down with a couple of guards and says something like a picture is worth a thousand words. The nature boy's back. Uh, the city's on fire and we're wrestling for a title. I never lost. And then he does color for the NWA world title match where Barry Windham would pin the great Muda after a leaping DDT about 24 minutes in. And now Barry Windham becomes the NWA world champion. Keller would give it two stars and say it was disappointing, credible, but too slow and lacking any intensity for most of the bout. Rick came to the ring with the belt and fastened it on Barry. And when Barry realized it was him, he quickly turned around and they have a stare down, which plants the seeds for their upcoming feud. And Rick would make his first TV appearance on a show that was taped just a couple of days after this on February 23rd, but it doesn't make air until early March. And it looks like we're off to the races for Ric Flair back in the NWA world title picture with Barry Windham. What'd you think of the match? And what'd you think of the promo? And then the angle afterwards with uh, Rick and Barry. Uh, I agree with Wade on this one. It, it had a lot of potential, but again, you got, you know, Muda, who he could work American style, and often when when Gaijin or Americans uh, would go over to Japan, Muda was you know Muda and Shono and you know a handful of others were always the go-to because they could adapt to an American style, and some some Americans adapt more easily to the Japanese style, but sometimes you get guys like Muda and Barry Windham who just didn't really adapt to each other's styles. And it's not a bad match, but it's not an exceptional one either. It's, it's, it, it fights hard to find that mediocre mark. Nothing against either one of the Barry Windham to this day is still one of the guys I really look forward to seeing out on the road when we do shows and things like that. Um, always was a, a pretty good friend and had a lot of respect for Barry. Uh, but sometimes, like I said, it's just chemistry, and the chemistry wasn't really here in this match. It wasn't laid out well for either one of them. Uh, they weren't able to kind of pick it up on their own because of the lack of chemistry, not lack of respect, not lack of uh, anything, just lack of chemistry. As far as the, you know, the, the feud going forward, here's another thing. I was thinking about this the other day. I don't know why, but I was thinking about Dusty and – and working with Dusty, it must somebody must have asked me a question about it on social media to get me thinking about it. But I was reflecting back, and you know, Dusty's creative influences and his his role in WCW is you know subject of a lot of different opinions. Let's put it that way. And I I know because I worked with Dusty, you know, not not a lot, you know, not as much as some people did, but I worked with him enough. And, and had 
enough of a relationship with him away from the office and the formal process of booking to really get into his head and understand why he did things the way he did or why he saw things creatively the way he did. And those conversations took place, like I said, outside of the office, not hanging out and having a cocktail in the Omni bar, or it took place while we were out hunting or dove hunting or driving up and down the road or hanging out at his house. Um, Dusty, Dusty, I think was one of the most creative people I've ever worked with in his head. The challenge with Dusty was getting from in his head in the vision he saw to paper in a way that everybody could execute on his vision. Dusty thought like a movie writer and a movie producer. He didn't think like a wrestling producer. His stories were more intricate. His setups were sometimes subtle and I think would have been great for long form entertainment for a television show or for a movie. If that's why you were trying to write or that's what you were trying to write for. But I, I've learned over time that wrestling stories, I've said this before in this podcast, they need to be painted in big and bright colors with very broad strokes and not rely on shades of gray or nuance. I firmly believe that it's never going to change in my mind. Dusty would have a great idea. And the idea was very broad strokes and was very fluorescent in terms of it, the way he would describe it. So the colors and the, the framework of the story were very easy to see. But when it came to the execution, it would often get lost in the nuance. And I see that here to a degree, you know, bringing Ric Flair back, I, you know, and I'm going to take a hit on this one. You go back, you reference, you know, Ric Flair making his appearance, you know, into the arena and then walking, you know, out to the audience and ultimately doing that interview. Well, if you go back and look at that scene that you're describing, you know, the, the first of all, you don't see the limo pull in. It's already in. Well, that's just cheap. That's just, that's a shortcut. If that limo should, if that arrival should have mattered, if the goal for that scene was to create anticipation, which by the way, it should have been its only goal. There was no other goal to, needed to be addressed in that particular scene. Build anticipation for a moment. That moment should, should have been the first time you see Ric Flair get out of that, that car. Well, we should have seen it pull in all the way, not cheapen it by, oh, well, we just happened to show up and it's already here and the doors are closed. I hated that. It's just me picking shit apart, but it is what it is. The second thing, I hate to make fun of the way people look, but come on, it's television. Whoever hired the two girls that came out of that limo with Rick, that should have been the last time they ever hired two girls to walk out of a limo with Rick. Took, it took away. They didn't say anything. You didn't really get a good look at them. You know, it, it, it just it was awkward and, and didn't serve a purpose. I think the whole nuance of Ric Flair putting the belt on Barry Windham and Barry Windham turning around and realizing it was Ric Flair as a way to plant that subtle seed, I completely get it. And I think most people did. Unfortunately, I don't think it created any intensity or drama. It was too subtle. And that's what I mean about, you know, it's a great idea, 
But if the execution is so subtle that it doesn't really impact the viewer and make them go, holy shit, this is going to be a big deal. If you don't get them in the beginning and set the tone right off the bat, now you're going to have to work over the period of weeks and months to try to get them. And the best opportunity is the first time they're together. I think if they would have, if Dusty would have kind of turned up the volume on that scene just a little bit and painted that picture with brighter colors and little broader strokes and done a better job of establishing that this shit is going to go down between these two guys. And that title means everything to both of them. That's a whole lot different of a statement than, Oh, it's Ric Flair. And he never really lost a title. And Barry Windham knows all about Ric Flair. Oh my gosh, what's going to happen. It was too subtle. It was too nuanced. Let's get to our main event. Nothing nuanced about this. A couple of big dudes beating the shit out of each other. It's an incredible match with a horrific video series that Sharon Sadello put together to get us here. It's the white castle of fear strap match that a lot of people have made fun of because of the video vignettes. And I'm going to give you an opportunity to poke holes in that and shit upon it as I'm sure you will. It was a mini movie that aired during WCW Saturday night where Sting was going to the White Castle of Fear in order to accept Vader's challenge. It's unbelievable. We'll link it on our social media. But the match is badass. Wade Keller would even say it was a match of the year candidate. Four and a half stars. For whatever reason, the chemistry with these two guys was always great, and this is no exception. The finish would see Vader dragging Sting to three turnbuckles, where the rule is you have to touch all four in succession in order to win the match. Sting then kicked him away, but Vader fell into the fourth turnbuckle to win the match. So Vader is your winner here. Lots of classic matches between these guys. Uh, after the match, Vader would even be hospitalized for this one for bleeding heavily from his ear. Uh, later that night or early the next morning, he would be uh, released from the hospital. But it's a unanimous best match of the night. They go 20 minutes and 57 seconds. I loved it. What'd you think? I <clears throat> found a whole new, you know, respect again for both Vader and Sting. I mean, Vader, Vader was awesome. I mean, he, this might've been one of his best performances in WCW. I know he had a lot of them, a number of them. Um, but when I looked at this match, it just, first of all, he looked phenomenal. You know, this is early in his WCW tenure, and he looked great physically. Wasn't carrying too much weight. He was just unbelievable. He his work rate was off the chart for his size, and we all we always say that. You know, we always like well for his size, I mean, his work rate was amazing. His work rate was fucking amazing. Period. Full stop. Whether he weighed 180 pounds or he weighed 480 pounds, fucking work rate was amazing. Sting, especially in the third act or the third part of this match, going into the finish, when he was you know hung up in the ropes and getting choked up. I mean, his selling, and then there was a sequence of events where he was throwing uppercuts or throwing punches, you know, from the floor, you know, while Vader was kind of prone on the ropes. I just. I was shocked at how good that looked and how well that was executed. So yeah, the white, the whole white castle fear bullshit and videos and all the gaga that, you know, surrounded this particular match 
Conrad is right. You know, listeners, if you're if you're listening to this and you really love classic wrestling, you want to see Sting at it really. I think the, his peak. You want to see Vader at a peak performance. You want to see a phenomenal fucking match. Go back and watch this match, and forget about the fact that Sharon Sadello did goofy fucking you know mini movies about it because it doesn't matter. But this match was phenomenal. Really, really excited to go back and watch it. Go out of your way to watch it and. While you're at it, go watch this goofy as shit, Saren Sadello mini movie. Eric, uh, I'm sure you were very, very far away from this. Um, was there any discussion of what the budget was for this piece of shit? Uh, cause obviously you guys are sort of cutting costs and this feels like a big expense. Uh, what did you think? Were people poking fun of this in the office? Was everybody trying to be positive and just lie to each other and say it was great. Chat me up. Well, it was a little bit of everything. Um, the budget was really high for it. I, I don't recall what it was. I'm not sure. Not that I don't recall. I was never involved in the budget process, approving or not approving it. I didn't produce it. So there was no way I would have known um, other than hearing, you know, second, third, fourth, fifth hand what the budget was. It was a lot, though. It was in six figures. Um, Sharon hired, you know, a lot of people from outside of WCW to, to help produce it. Now I'm not a big fan of Sharon Sadello. I thought she was a very dishonest person. Um, not, not, not that she tried to steal or, or, you know, commit fraud of any kind or anything like that. But in the way she conducted herself, wasn't really what I would consider to be an honest person. She's very duplicitous. She was very super political. She was probably when I talk about politics, other than Jim Barnett and Gary Juster, there was nobody more political than Sharon Sadella. Nobody. And that was evident to me from the very, very beginning of my exposure to her. At this time, you know, that we're talking about here, she's reporting to Bob Dew. Bob Dew, super nice guy. There was a reason he was in the position he was in, and that's because everybody loved him within Turner Broadcasting. Um, he he was a pretty easy mark for someone like Sharon Sadella. Um, didn't put up a lot of resistance to, to things at that time. Sharon, now I'm going to defend her as much as I didn't like her. Uh, and I didn't have any respect for her. I will defend her at this point to a degree because the, the prevailing, you know, the consensus was, well, the reason WWF is so much better than us is because their production values are so much higher. And that was true. That was not a, it was not a false premise. That was very, very true. And I think to Sharon's defense, she felt that by coming up with this kind of epic mini movie Hollywood-esque type of promotion for this event, that it may help bridge the gap between the perceived difference, not perceived, but between the realistic difference between the production values in WWF and the production values typically in, in WCW. And and I, I didn't disagree with that. I mean, the, like I said, the premise of that logic is sound. But going to the extent that she did with it, losing any sense of reality, you know, once you step, it's a really funny thing, you know, I've learned and I've, and I've done, you know, I've learned more from my mistakes than I have from my success. I want to make that really clear, but the farther you go from this could be true into, well, yeah, but that's what they do in Hollywood. 
you know, if you if you allow yourself to get caught up in that philosophical struggle between, yeah, but that could be really true, which really works for wrestling, and wow, that's a really great movie trailer for a Hollywood movie. There, you've got to be really careful. You don't get too far into the middle of those two opportunities because that gray area can be deadly. If you, if you do a promotion that is so slick, so well-produced, it feels like a movie trailer and it doesn't, it's not no longer relatable to the characters in the story, the way the audience relates to them, you're fucked. And that's what this thing did. This white castle of fear nonsense did. I understand why she did it. I understand how she probably convinced Bob Dude to spend the money to do it. I'm not saying she was entirely wrong, but the execution was the execution was entirely wrong. Well, the uh, voters or the readers of the Wrestling Observer Reader Poll voted here for Super Brawl Three, and they gave it 95.2% thumbs up. You got to think a lot of that is based on that incredible main event. Only 4.6% thumbs in the middle, 0.2% thumbs down. You look back with a different set of critical eyes, though. You were there. What did you think? I I don't know if I'd, I'd, I'd be quite as liberal with my thumbs up. I mean, I, I do agree it's a thumbs up show. You know, I do agree it was a positive show. I do agree there was a lot of great highlights that I enjoyed. Uh, I, I, the show achieved a lot of its goals, but there was enough horseshit on this thing that I don't think I would have been quite as, um, thrilled about it as maybe some of the fans were. And I agree with you, Conrad. That's a good point. You do a poll right after a pay-per-view and the main event comes off as well as that one did. You're going to get, you know, a really good response. People are going to forget about the fact that we had Johnny B. Bad and fucking Missy Hyatt and Eric Bischoff hosting this show probably three or four times throughout the format. And it sucked. It took it down. Missy got worse as the night went on. Um, it, you know, and I was bad and stayed bad. So it, it Johnny be bad. God bless him. Um, he's fucking horrible. I don't know what Dusty was thinking or whoever was thinking it. I won't, I'm assuming it's Dusty because he was a big fan of Johnny B. Bads. But to put Johnny in that role of kind of being a host of the show with Missy Hyatt and Eric Bischoff, Johnny, that was not his skill set. He, he might have been good at a lot of shit, but hosting a show wasn't one of them. It was horrible. So there was enough of that kind of thing, the Max Payne thing, you know, playing the Star Spangled Banner on his electric guitar when he was a heel. That goes up my ass like a fucking flamethrower right now. When I see things like that that are so inconsistent with what you're trying to achieve with the character, let's make him a heel so everybody hates him. No, and yeah, and then we'll give him a guitar and he can go out and play the Star Spangled Banner so, Star Spangled Banner so people have to stand and put their hands in their hearts. What the fuck? Who came up with that? Doesn't somebody, I mean, come on. It's like basic good guy, bad guy psychology. You don't do that. And when I see things like that, especially to start off a show, it's just, yeah. So I'd give it a, I'd, I'd give it a moderate thumbs up, not an overwhelming thumbs up. Well, hopefully you guys gave us a thumbs up today and we'll be back next week with a very special edition of ask Eric, anything for letting you, the fans pick Eric's brain next week. 
as he prepares for a long flight to Tokyo. He's going to be abroad for a little bit, so we're going to depart from our normal format where we review one singular topic in long form and instead bounce around a little bit. And you can ask Eric about anything from the AWA days to the WCW days to the WWE days to the TNA days, or what he thinks about the current products. And we'll see you next week right here on 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.